Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown with three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown. You get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at Wilmington and Beaches Vacation.com. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, you look at the news, you listen to the news, you watch television, and it seems so often as if you're overwhelmed with a constant bombardment of negativity. And it's so easy to get despondent. It's so easy to get down in the dumps. It's so easy when you read a story about a horrible crime that's taking place. It's so easy to get despondent when you read about uh, things like climate change or the fate of the world or people at war with one another or children starving or whatever it is that manages to depress you. If you read the newspaper, watch television or listen to on 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 the radio on a regular basis, there is plenty of opportunity to be Depressed. Well, that is when I find it's more important than ever to turn to a gentleman who I believe can write prescriptions, but I'm not sure he's authorized to write a prescription for happiness, even though he put, he he doses that out as plentiful as any any drug. And that is Jeffrey Gurian, a comedy writer, a stand-up comic, a host, an author, a producer, a director, a former dentist, and a guy who I I have dubbed the world's foremost authority on all things related to happiness. Jeffrey, it is great to see you. Thanks for coming in studio. Frank, thanks so much. It's always so great to be on with you, and especially the number one rated show on WABC. That's saying a lot. Thank you very much. I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, now, I, I'm a, I was a little surprised that you agreed to my request to come in because I know you're Jewish, and today is Yom Kippur. Well, how did you get away? How did you get away with that? Did you get a special uh, dispensation from the Jewish Pope or something? Wait till I tell you this. I'm so confused that I fasted today instead of tomorrow. Uh, see, I fasted on the wrong day. I don't even know my own religion. I was so caught up in the fact that I was going to dinner at my ex-wife's house with her husband and my whole family, which is another thing I like to talk about because I honor my ex-wife for giving me my children. Wonderful. And we have a great relationship. And I go to the house that I used to own, which was a lovely house (laughs) in Westchester. But we all celebrate together. As a matter of fact, you know, after we got divorced, she adopted two, two children and had one of her own. And that little girl grew up and had a baby of her own, and I brought a present for the baby tonight. Oh, that's wonderful. Because that's how I like to lead my life. That's great. And to try to eliminate negativity. No, there was you know? no no resentment, no bitterness, nothing bittersweet about going to your old house that you used to pay for? <laughs> you know, in the beginning, it probably felt strange, but I got used to it because I wanted my family to be happy. That's wonderful. You know, that's great. And I think it's very important. And I wanted my children to grow up in the same house that they would have grown up in if I stayed. And I put all that other stuff aside. I could have been bothered by it, but I chose not to. It's about controlling your mind. That's a favorite topic of mine. 
Controlling your thoughts. So to all my Jewish friends and a lot of the Jewish listeners, yeah. I would say, have an easy fast. I don't need to tell you that because you've already, I already fasted. fasted. Okay. I felt so stupid admitting that. I got to the house, and I was like, I'm really hungry. And I and they said, why did you fast today? It's tomorrow. And I'm like, that's my ADHD. I'm so confused all the time. Maybe that's why I... I, I, you know, I look for positivity. Who fasts on the wrong day? That's very funny. <laughs> Isn't I that ridiculous? You, I, I, the most common question that I ask my smart speaker at home is what day it is. Because I have no idea what day it is. Because well, if it's after midnight, I start I, my day on, on Tuesday. I end it on Wednesday. I still can't grasp yeah, that. When I call you and we talk about right, what day I'm coming right. on, I'm like, Tuesday night. To me, this is Tuesday night. But I know it's Wednesday morning. Right. When you but, have to, when you start then dealing with people in other times, zones, people in California, people in Europe, and they say, all right, so you're going to come on uh, Tuesday at 1030. I said, wait a minute, do you mean Tuesday night at 1030 <laughs> your time? Or do you mean Wednesday morning? It's it's a well, big uh, big thing. I've gotten parking tickets because of that, because oh. those signs are very confusing. They it are. says no parking Tuesday or Thursday from like you know, from 2 a.m. to whatever, when I used to stay out late, I would get tickets because I couldn't figure it out. Cops don't even understand sometimes. Uh, now, that is... It's the next day. That is for sure. If people are just tuning in, uh, this we're talking with Jeffrey Gurian. He's my guest for the hour. We'll take your calls at uh, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And, Jeffrey, for people that haven't heard our previous conversations, because we have a lot of new listeners in Baltimore and Nevada and some other places. And congratulations on that, Thank by you the way. Very That's much. so awesome. Um, people may not be familiar with you. You made a very interesting career transition. It is very unique uh, from what I – or I, you're not supposed to say very unique. It is totally <laughs> unique from what I have seen. And uh, you went from being a dentist to a comedy writer, a comedy producer, a comedy pro- – uh, everything comedian – and I, there's a wonderful short-form documentary that I just linked to on my Facebook page, and it's called Who the F is Jeffrey Gurian? It's hysterical, and it really does a great job telling people who you are in only 17 minutes. But um, if you were to explain to people that aren't familiar with you, why did you choose to make that transition from dentistry, where you had a very successful practice, a lot of clients that are always getting their teeth knocked out, like Curtis Lee? What? I was his dentist. <laughs> How did you go from being uh, such a successful dentist to so successful in the world of comedy? It was a very gradual transition. When I was 12 years old, and by the way, I just want to wish everyone who celebrates a very happy and a healthy, sweet New Year. Absolutely, because you were kind enough to mention that. And as long as you're not doing stuff for money, and I we don't get, I don't get paid for this, right. so it's fine. I'm not doing. It's creative. I'm bringing goodness to the world with this, and Absolutely. so it's fine. I think to do it on the holiday. I'll double check with my rabbi tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it was a very gradual transition while I was in practice. Like well. well when I was 12 years old, I must have been a really weird kid because I wanted to be a doctor, but I knew I couldn't handle life and death situations because I'm, I was very sensitive. And I was having braces at the time. And I said, you know, this is nice. I could be an orthodontist and I'll make people look beautiful. And I was already writing comedy at 12 years old. So my whole life was that split. I, I never changed what I wanted to do from the time I was 12 years old, which is very unusual. And while I was in practice, I was a cosmetic specialist, and I was already writing for Rodney Dangerfield and Joan Rivers and uh, Milton Berle and Jerry Lewis, and I was the writer for the Friars Club for 12 years while I was in practice. And my nurse had strict instructions, never interrupt me when I'm with a patient unless it's for show business. (laughs) So she would come in and she'd say, Dr. Rivers is on the phone, Dr. Lewis is calling, 
The only one no one believed was Dr. Dangerfield. <laughs> no, no one ever believed. So I would take the call, you know, and I would write jokes in between patients sometimes. Or like if the Friars Club would call me. One time I had to leave in a snowstorm to host a show with Gilbert Gottfried, who was always my favorite comedian for so many years. And rest in peace Absolutely. to Gilbert. Absolutely. Still you such know. a shame that we ben, lost. So, what, what a Great fantastic talent. talent. An amazing guy. And so... I did that, to, you know, for many years, I was doing both at the same time, which is a very difficult thing to do. It's not like I had a choice. It was just like I could never make up my mind which I liked best. I loved making people beautiful. I loved doing painless dentistry. And then I became a professor at, at NYU, a clinical professor in oral medicine and orofacial pain. And I was still doing that. I did that for 12 years. And my specialty was treating TMJ which I like to talk about because in this country alone, Frank, there's more than 150 million people who suffer with what they think are migraine headaches that really come from their jaw. Mm. From stress, we clench and grind our teeth. And the last three years have been so stressful for people that a lot of dentists are reporting that people are coming in with cracked teeth, broken fillings, cracked crowns and stuff, and headaches. And too many dentists don't ask if you're like... If you wake up in the morning and your neck hurts, the last person in the world you would think to tell would be your dentist, right? Why would you ever tell your dentist that your neck hurts? It wouldn't occur to you. So if the dentist doesn't ask you, when you wake up in the morning, do you have pain in your neck or your shoulders or your back, you're not going to know that it could be coming from your jaw because the muscles from the jaw, interestingly enough, go into the temple region. They go behind your head in what they call the occipital region and down into the shoulders in the trapezius region. And those muscles, when they when they are overworked, it's like, have you ever had a, a cramp in your calf? Sure. You know absolutely. how painful that yes. is, right? Well, your head feels like bone, but it's really bone covered by a thin layer of muscle. And when those muscles get overworked, they go into spasm, and that's where the headaches come from. So it's very important that that becomes part of being checked. When you have your teeth checked, they should also check the muscles in your face and ask you if you have neck pain. And if so, then... I would make people a soft night guard for the hmm. lower teeth. I've been wearing one for years. So we're, we're, you mentioned it before about the negativity that we're surrounded with. Everything you read is negative. Crime is out of control. The news is bad, you know. I have to constantly remind myself to stay positive. Like, it's been raining for four days here right. in New York, right. right? Very easy to be in a bad mood, to feel mm-hmm. depressed. And I was feeling it because I'm very sensitive. I'm an empath. So I feel what you feel. I have no choice in the matter. And I was walking in the street and I was feeling kind of down. And then I said, you know what? This is the remainder of the hurricane in Florida. Those people lost their homes. They were swept away. People died. And I'm going to feel sad that it's raining? Well, you know, I gave a similar commentary yesterday urging people to take advantage of the gray weather, to do some uh, some indoor activities, read a book, listen to some podcasts that you haven't had time to, write some letters or even watch a movie. And uh, I, I find it to be a great excuse not to do any of your outdoor chores, right? Because you don't feel guilty if you're not uh, building a shed or doing anything else when it's raining like this. But I, I was going to ask you this a little bit later in theme with some of the books that you've written, but since that you mentioned this now, you mentioned all the reasons there are to be negative. Intellectually, I think people listening to us understand the importance of staying positive and the importance of finding a, a silver lining. 
But a lot of times that's easier said than done. Absolutely. Right? Oh, um, you're reading okay. about a monkeypox outbreak and a COVID outbreak. Oh, and just when you're over monkeypox and COVID, here comes the flu. You're reading about crime. Maybe the people that you uh, support to get elected aren't getting elected. How do you manage to, even though you understand the importance of staying positive, right. how do you manage it? If everything in your life is seemingly negative or everything you encounter is negative, how do you manage to stay positive through all that? It's a battle. It's a constant It's a constant thing. For me personally, I learned to control my mind when I cured myself of stuttering. And that's something that I also like to talk about because people need to hear that. Because in this country alone, I think there are more than 3 million people who wow. stutter. And it affects not only them but their families. And I stuttered from the time I was 7 through my 20s and beyond. And I had to cure myself because I, I, I refused to go through my life as a stutterer. Um, and I realized one day I didn't stutter when I was alone. I only stuttered when I was trying to talk to somebody else. And I consider it grace. I figured out you can't have a disability based on your location, right? Like if a man has a limp, he limps in every room right. of his house. He can't go into a room and close the door and walk perfectly. But if I could speak okay when I'm alone, theoretically it means there's nothing wrong with me. And I realized that I needed to take control of my mind, that I created this for myself. I created a false disability. And it took me several years of very hard work to realize I was holding thoughts that were not valid for me. And all of us do that. You, everybody oh, in the absolutely. world. We're all holding thoughts that were not valid for us, many of them from childhood. And it was the essence of my first book on happiness. is called Healing Your Heart by Changing Your Mind a spiritual and humorous approach to achieving happiness. And it's about releasing the pains of our childhood that every, every time, from the time we're kids, every time someone hurts your feelings, breaks a promise to you, bullies you, makes fun of you, breaks up with you in a relationship, all that stuff stays inside of you, lodged in your heart chakra. And it affects your self-esteem and your self-confidence because every time, every time you have to make a decision in your life, you think about what to do. You mm. use your thoughts, right? And if your thoughts are not valid, if you're holding negative thoughts about yourself, your decisions aren't going to work out. So it's the reason why people get the same bad job over and over again or they're in the same bad relationship. Mm. And so I had to learn to control my thoughts and release the negative thoughts that I had about myself and take what must have been an inferiority complex and turn it into a superiority complex, not to feel better than other people, but just to feel even. Um, we're talking with Jeffrey Gurian. If you want to learn more about some of the things that he's doing, you can go to ComedyMattersTV.com. That's ComedyMattersTV.com. You can also check out uh, all of his books. Most of them, if not all of them, are available on Amazon. Just search his last name, Gurian, G-U-R-I-A-N. It is Yom Kippur. You mentioned a lot of the terrific Jewish comedians that you've worked with over the years. If you had to pick a favorite, either someone that you're a fan of uh, that you've not worked with or someone that you have worked with, who is your absolute favorite Jewish comedian? You know, that's such an interesting question. I got to work with the greats from the golden age. And I date myself when I say this, but I also work with all the young guys from today. Mm -hmm. So that saves me. But Milton Berle was my sponsor in the Friars Club. And he's the guy that gave the Friars Club to the Friars Club. I think he owned that building first. Uh, I got to work with Jackie Mason. I got to work with Sid Caesar, you know, um, Henny Youngman, J. 
Jerry Lewis. I got to write with Jerry Lewis two nights alone in his hotel room, working with just him on his when he was being roasted by the Friars Club. And while I was with him, he got a phone call that they discovered the gene that caused the Duchenne form of muscular dystrophy. And I watched tears roll down his face. He was so moved by that. And it was just he wow. and I to share that moment. You know, I wrote a movie for Jackie Mason. I got to meet the, uh, a lot of the greats, the Jewish greats. From the, in, you know, in the old days, all comedians were Jewish. Right. <laughs> it was very rare to find a comedian who wasn't. And so, you know, it's, it's very interesting to me. And as a matter of fact, now, I can't tell you all the details, but, I, but I'm going to break it on your show. I'm involved in creating a television show uh, about the Borscht Belt. Oh, really? Yes. The Catskills and that yeah. whole area. And it's going to be a series. And I can't say more than that right now, but I'll be able to say it soon because it's going to be officially announced. But it's going to be very exciting. And if you, if you like Mrs. Maisel... You will love oh, this show. Love Mrs. Mason. Yeah, then you will love this well, that's show. Terrific. It's said in the same era. Can you give us so, a timetable? What's the timetable for when people might actually be able to see it, or when it'll be in production? Give us well. Uh, there's a hint. A, there's a, a documentary also being done. I would say in about a year. In well, about a year exciting. from now, it's very very exciting, and I'm part of the writing team. So that's great. Uh, I'm that's... really looking forward to that. But you know, Jewish humor, you know, and in those days it. It, it, you know, it all had to be clean. If you wanted to work on TV, Jerry Seinfeld is a great example of that. A great wordsmith. Always works clean. It, I, I'm a big fan of Jerry Seinfeld. His stand-up and his show, everything he does. It, yesterday was also Hispanic Heritage Day. If you had to pick best either from any era, best Hispanic comedian of all time, or best one, your favorite. Not oh, best, who's gee. to say what's best? Who's that your is, favorite? That is, that is so hard. Um, who did I... You know, I I like John Leguizamo. Mm. I like his one man shows, and I got to be friendly with him for a while. I haven't seen him in a long time, but um, and uh, who else? You know, there's it's on the tip of my tongue, and I can't remember. Uh, hey, I, John uh, Leguizamo is a pretty good answer. John Leguizamo is great. I used to see him quite often. That's terrific. Hey, Jeffrey Gurian is here. We're going to take your calls throughout the hour. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. In just a moment, we'll talk a little bit about uh, Jeffrey's newest book uh, and some really interesting stories that he profiles in that book. We'll find out what else he's up to these days and uh, get his perspective on a variety of things happening in life. This is the other side of midnight. I'm. Frank Moreno joined for the hour by Jeffrey Gurian. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Ricky Martin, he's certainly living La Vida Loca uh, in the aftermath of, uh, not the aftermath, the, uh, the day after Hispanic Heritage Day. Every day is a good day for celebrating the Hispanic contributions to our country. I was hoping there would be a little bit more leftover Spanish food in the kitchen, but they, I mean, when there's good Spanish food, they they 
eat all that up. It lasts all of ten minutes. It's true. It's true. I had uh, I had tacos yesterday. We'll talk a little bit about that. It was National uh, Taco Day. My guest for the hour is comedy writer, stand-up comic, host, author, producer, director, and former dentist Jeffrey Gurian. Hey Jeffrey, I saw uh, the uh, a recent edition of Dan's Papers, which is a big paper out on the East End of Long Island, and uh, my friend Todd Shapiro did this terrific profile all about uh, you. Uh, congratulations. And uh, I think that was a really a great article, an article that kind of captures your essence really well in a short amount of time. Thanks. Thanks. You know, it, it's really a, a big honor when somebody does something like that. And you mentioned that documentary that was done about me. Also, it's a very strange feeling to see your life like in a film. From the time I was a child, they, they showed the progression of you know, and me teaching at NYU, and me working with all the comedians and interviewing people on red carpets, it actually brought tears to my That's eyes. That's wonderful. That's you wonderful. Know, it was a very moving experience, and this article in Dan's papers, it was a great, a great honor. I was at a PAL luncheon, and Vicky Schneps approached me she, from Schneps sure, Media. Sure, I know Vicky. Yeah, yeah, and you know John Katsimatidis always hosts these PAL luncheons, and she came over to me and she goes. You look very interesting. What do you do? <laughs> <laughs> and, and everyone thinks I'm in the music business, which is like crazy. I was at Rockers on Broadway last night, and three women came over to me and thanked me for my contributions to the music world. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> what, what did you say? You welcome? I just said thank you. Yeah, it was so noisy that I couldn't get into I was curious to know who they thought I was. Because I was on a cruise once, and a guy was convinced that I was Elton John. <laughs> and he followed me for three days, and he kept... I thought he was a lunatic because he kept coming over and saying, thank you for the red piano. And I didn't know Elton John had an album called The Red Piano. I just thought he was a maniac. But, uh, didn't they uh, see that you didn't have an English accent or anything like that? This guy was, was supposedly an eye surgeon. And he, fa- he went over to a friend of mine and he said to him, is that who I think it is? <laughs> and my friend, who has a good sense of humor, never said, who do you think it is? He just said, yes. I love so, it. That's so great. Said, That's brilliant. So the guy literally followed me for three days. And then he sent a very expensive drink to my table. And, and I said, listen, I don't know who you think I am, but I'm not that person. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so it, it, you know, it happens a lot. So Vicky Schnepp said to me, we need to do an article about you. And that's how it came about. And so Todd Shapiro wrote a great article. And, you know, he's a great press agent. Absolutely. One of the best. Everybody, and a good he, friend. He represents everybody on Long Island. Yeah, no, he, he's All the hot terrific. restaurants, 75 Main and uh, the Capri Hotel. Absolutely. Todd Shapiro is there all the time. Uh, no, he's, he's, where, he's everywhere. And I'm glad you're at that uh, PAL luncheon. Um, the, the work that our bosses, John and Margot Katsimatidis, put into the PAL luncheon rivals what they do in any other aspect of life. They put into they put more work and more effort into those police athletic league luncheons than they do, I think, their profit-making businesses. So I'm glad that uh, that you were there. It's always a really special event. I met so many great people, too, and I got to thank John personally for what he's done at WABC. Wonderful. What a great lineup of talent. And, you know, I thank every cop I see. I walk up to them in the street, even when they're in groups, when they're in their cars, I knock on the window. They probably think something's wrong. And I say, I just want to thank you guys for your service because we need you so much. And the police they athletic league. Oh, I'm, I'm not surprised. The police athletic league specifically, people get concerned about things like crime. By providing uh, other alternatives to things like gangs and drugs for youth, uh, but through sports and through other things like that, it really is so meaningful in terms of having youth not go down a uh, a wayward 
a wayward path. Talking with Jeffrey Gurian, your newest happiness book is Facing Adversity, Stories of Courage and Inspiration. It's a collection of true stories of very courageous people who overcame some serious obstacles to lead happy, meaningful lives. We want people to check out the book. It's called Facing Adversity. They could get it on Amazon. But just give us at least one story that you of somebody that you profiled in the book that you found inspirational. Well, something happened recently that really brought it home. I write about all people that, that overcame tremendous difficulties. And there was one, an, an actress, a double amputee named Katie Sullivan. And I wrote about her in the book. And just the other day, I actually brought the article. I read the New York Post every day since I'm a kid. Mm-hmm. I love the New York Post. And there's a whole article about how she's going to be starring on Broadway in a show called The Cost of Living. And she's going to play... Uh, a woman who winds up in a wheelchair due to a serious car accident, and she's uh, a Paralympic uh, champion, a runner. She started running in her 20s. She was born without lower legs. Wow. And uh, I guess and she wore prosthetics from the time she was a child, but when she was 20 years old, she started running, believe it or not, and they gave her these special legs, runner's legs, and... She's amazing. She dances. She does all kinds of things. And now she's going to be starring on Broadway. And I love stories like that. I started collecting them over a period of 20 years. There's one story that stands out to me that, I mean, not that that doesn't blow me away, but a little three-year-old boy playing hide-and-seek puts his hands in a tractor and his hands get cut off. Mm. And his father sees this happening, and his father happened to be a surgeon, but not that kind of surgeon, not a transplant surgeon. He races the little boy to the hospital, and it's a holiday, and there's no surgeons available who can do that kind of work. So the father assembles a team and works for nine hours to reattach his little boy's hands. He puts them in casts. Three months later, he takes off the cast. The hands are alive. The transplants took, but they're not functional. The hands aren't functional. The grandfather happens to be a martial arts expert and trains this little boy every day growing up to use his hands. And today, that little boy is a famous spinal surgeon. Wow. And he runs the spinal surgery clinic at a hospital in Colorado. That's terrific. I love that. That that story is so amazing to me. And those are the kind of stories that people need to hear because they're inspirational. Uh, No doubt about it. So those are both... The kinds of stories that are in the book, that are in the facing, book facing adversity. adversity, stories of courage and inspiration. And people can check that out on, on Amazon. Amazon, along with my other happiness books, the happiness series. Uh, th- no, that's terrific. 800-848-9222. Let's take a couple of calls uh, for Jeffrey Gurian while he's in studio. Let me, begin with, uh, let me begin with Jeff in Queens. Hello, Jeff. Hey, guys. How you doing? Great. Let me thank Frank Morano for bringing you, Dr. Gurian, to my attention. Unbelievable. You know, last time, the time before that, and then now again tonight. It's just, I look forward to learning all about you and reading your, your material. Overcoming, thank you. Overcoming stuttering, something I, I did as a boy also. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I like the self-esteem thing you said about it, but whatever it was, I, I had to face that, that nightmare too for a while. Um, when you said the rain, you know, the, you turned, you, you did a 180 with the rain. You said, look, the, you know, this is the rain remnant from the hurricane, and all we get is bad skies. Other people lost their lives, and that, you know, that's a Jewish, or that's making the best of. My dad, he was a dentist, but coincidentally, and he was we're Jewish, and we were, you know, secular but Jewish, and. He, he, I remember as a boy, the, the, the expression was, 
when, when things would go bad, to make it better, I'm, I'm choking up because, you know, my parents, I was 10 years old. I learned the expression, that's life under the czar. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure you, I'm sure you, you know that well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, um, but I appreciate your call. I appreciate you talking about that you used to stutter. People need to know that you can get better. They're not being told that. There are stuttering institutes that are teaching people to accept their stuttering. And acceptance is for things you can't change. If you know the serenity prayer, it's grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's the most important thing. So when you cured yourself of stuttering... You become an inspiration to other people, right? And um, you're, you're the stunt, when you were writing jokes back for your 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 receptionist, your your, your, your person would say, "Would come and say, Doctor Lewis has." has <laughs> that was very funny, Jeff. Uh, thanks Thank for you. calling. I'm glad you're doing well. Thanks for listening, and uh, good luck with everything. Okay, P- appreciate it. Eight hundred eight for you know. You're not supposed to say Happy Yom Kippur, right? What are you supposed to say? Just, you can uh, you say Have a sweet New Year, or, you okay. know. Have a sweet New Year. Got it. 800-848-9222. Speaking of uh, of happiness, you are making available your first happiness book uh, for free to people. How do they get a free copy of your first happiness? A mini copy. Mini copy. It's not the whole copy, but it's enough that they can get a taste of the book. And if they want to order the rest, they can. People don't have long attention spans Um, now anyway. So how do they get the free mini copy? On my website, ComedyMattersTV.com. If you scroll down a little bit, you'll see pictures of the book. And if you enter your email and your first and last name... You get you automatically get a, a mini copy of the book. Wonderful. Uh, now that first happiness book has inspired a new chapter in your own life. You've actually now launched a new coaching business. What, yeah. what is this? What are you doing exactly? It's very interesting. You know, you never know what words you say that people need to hear. And I wrote this book because I needed to express myself. As I told you, I'm an empath. And my goal is always to put out positive energy to the universe. And I realized that if I went through stuff like this, that other people are going through it too. So I wanted to put out a book that would be inspirational and teach people how to let go of painful memories and things that they're holding on to that are interfering with their happiness. Well, I got such a tremendous response. It's got more than 275 mostly five-star reviews of people who wrote in that it was literally life-changing for them. A few months ago, I got um, an email from a doctor in Georgia who told me that my book helped her get through serious heart surgery, and not because the title is Healing Your Heart. That's about healing your heart wounds. But she found it so inspiring that she says that it helped her recover, and she was connected to a women's health network, Mm. and she asked me to be a speaker for their group, and I was. So I... Over the past couple of years, because of the pandemic, it allowed me to learn how to stay home. I was never home. I never stayed home. But I stayed home for months after I recovered from COVID double pneumonia. I didn't go out of the house for months. I was afraid to leave. And I started getting asked to speak on online conferences. I just did one last week on learning how to love yourself. And I did so many of these that I became like a motivational speaker and a coach people asked me if I would coach them by the hour, and I started doing that for people who contacted me online. Terrific. And it's been very rewarding emotionally to be able to share knowledge and to be able to share your experience. I believe that if God gives you obstacles to overcome, you can either be crushed by them, or if you're lucky enough to overcome them, 
you're supposed to then help other people who are facing the same problems. How do, and I'm asking this from a selfish perspective because I'm always struggling to balance the different things that I'm trying to do time-wise, how do you manage to find the time to do this coaching business and not have it interfere with everything you're doing comedy-wise, everything you're doing in terms of writing, and everything else you're doing? How do you manage to balance that? I haven't slept in many years. (laughs) I I slept many years ago when I was much older. Now, I make time. You know, when people say they're too busy, I think it's a time management thing. I do a lot of things. You know, there are some people who don't return your call for several days. They're too busy. There's no such thing, you know, as being too busy to take care of certain things. It's how you manage your day, you know. You can always find time, even if you just write, I'm very busy, I'll call you later. Mm -hmm. There is always time, you know, like there's a schedule. I'm very left brain and very right brain. So from all my years in practice, I'm very used to scheduling things. My right brain is my creative side, but my left brain is my doctor side. So when I'm, you know, when I'm coaching people in Jerusalem, it's like seven hours later, you know, so I have to schedule. Like it's three o'clock my time, 10 o'clock your time. Right, That's right. all I know. I, and I keep a, a daily log and I, I, I write, I have a book and I put the times in and I just make everything work. 800-848-9222. Jeffrey Gurian is here. Lisa is in Manhattan. Hello, Lisa. Lisa? All right. Ron is in Michigan. Hello, Ron. Good morning, Frank and Jeffrey. Jeffrey, when I was about 11 years old, I had a mouthful of cavities that I'd never seen a dentist, and I had to get a checkup for school. So my mother found the most reasonable dentist in the neighborhood. He was a little old Jewish concentration camp survivor. Mm. In the first session, he used a painkiller. In the next session, he said, I'm going to try something with you. I'm not going to use as much painkiller. If it starts to hurt, you raise your hand. It got to the point where I didn't want to raise my hand. He, he was such an expert at drilling. And I believe that he was probably a dentist in a concentration camp working on Nazis. And if he hurt one of them, he would have ended up in the, in the gas chamber. Mm-hmm. But it was just it was such a, a beautiful experience with this dentist. I just loved it. I really enjoyed it, and, it's, and I, I tell people this, and they say you're sick, you know, but uh, I always ask for dentists when I go, can you try not using painkiller? And, they, of course, they'll never do that, but it was just a beautiful experience. Well, so, that's think, a great story. No, I think it's a great story, um, and I'm glad to hear that because so many adults are afraid to go to the dentist, and it's usually something that happened to them as a child because a lot of dentists worked on children who had no business working on children. They didn't have the personality for it. I used to work on little kids, and I would show them the needle and make believe that it was a water gun. I'd show them how it <laughs> squirted, and I'd put on tons of topical anesthetic, and they never felt the injection. And I think it's fantastic that you had that experience. You went to Temple for dental school, right? Yes. And uh, I, you know, I had uh, my cousin Andrea went to Temple, not to be a dentist, but she's she's an attorney now. She had a pretty good experience there. I understand you actually got a visit from the dean of that school. What happened? Yeah, it's a crazy story, and it's the kind of thing where you say like that you never know what happens in life. I brought up a picture. I actually sent it to you. I wanted to be a dentist from the time I was 12. And when I finally got into dental school, the very first day, the dean made a speech that 
to this day sends chills through my body. He said, we don't want any free thinkers here. If you want to be a hippie with a guitar, go to dental school in California. And that started um, four years of being picked on. And I was banned from school Hmm. because I grew a mustache. In those days, it was very popular to have a mustache. So the dean put up this letter in the school. I still have a copy of this all these years later. Can I read some of it? Please, yeah. Okay. He says, this is a communication on the subject of hair, which I deem to be of timely importance. The public's current concept of a professional gentleman, especially in the field of health, pictures a clean, neat-shaven, well-dressed person of good manners. A century ago, the concept of that era included such items as beards, mustaches, long sideburns, tobacco chewing, greasy black alpaca operating coats, etc. Customs change, and it appears to the more responsible persons that the current concept of a professional gentleman is a market improvement over that of a century ago. (laughs) So he posts this over the school, and they outlaw mustaches. So they find me, and they start to pick on me from day one. And I got banned from school. I was not allowed to be in the clinic for three weeks. And they told me, I had a, uh, an advisor who said to me that I was a disgrace to the profession. I'll never forget those words. He took me out in the hall. A 21-year-old kid said, I was a disgrace to the profession. It took me many years to get over the way I was treated. I was told that I should drop out of school. Um, there's a certain amount of requirements that you have to fulfill. If you miss even a couple right. of days, you're in trouble. I missed three weeks. They wouldn't even let my father in the clinic for me to work on him. One of the instructors had a Confederate flag in his office and a sign that said, the South will rise again. You told me about him. Yeah, and he's the guy that made it the roughest for me. And so my mother had to buy me a wig. She sent me a wig to wear, and I went. It was a flat wig with a part. And, (laughs) oh, oh, here's the picture. I don't know. Can anybody see this? If I hold it up. Uh, you, I have the picture. Maybe we'll, I'll share it on okay. Facebook as well. I have well. very short hair. I just had a, a mustache and sideburns, and I was banned from clinic. So when I, when I graduated, I vowed I would never go back to Philadelphia again, and I've never been back in all these years. One day, about well, it was before the pandemic, I get an email. The dean of the school would like to meet with me. I'm thinking, why does he want to meet right. with me? So because in my life I confront uncomfortability, I do everything that makes me nervous to do. Um, it's how I conquer fear. That's the other book I wrote was f- called Fight the Fear, Overcoming Obstacles That Stand in Your Way. Fear has always been a problem for me, but I never let it stop me. So I agreed to meet with him. He came to New York with a- another dean, and I assumed that they were coming to ask for a donation because I've never had anything to do with the mm-hmm. school. So I brought all this stuff with me. I brought my pictures, and I-, I thought to myself, you know what, this is a good opportunity for me to tell him how poorly I was treated because I expected that when you enter a profession that you're welcomed by the other doctors, not treated like a four-year fraternity hazing. Mm -hmm. I started to tell my story, and this kind man interrupted me, and he said, I want you to know that those doctors were racist and anti-Semites. And I said, wow. I said, I'm amazed that you would say that before I said Mm -hmm. it. That was always on my mind. He goes, they singled you out. They did it to a lot of people. And they ruined the reputation of the school. And we've changed the whole environment of the school. And we would never allow that. He said, and I want you to come and I want you to tell your story to the students. We're going to send a car for you. And we want you to come down and I'll give you a tour of the school. And you could tell them what happened to you. 
And then the pandemic hit, and we didn't get a chance to do that. But he had me give a series of lectures to the students. On He said, I want you to talk about changing frustration to enjoyable and hate to love. And he said to me, can you ever believe that the dean of the school that treated you like that would, would be in your life as a friend? And he actually said to me, can I give you a hug after the lunch? And I said, absolutely. I said, this is amazing. So last week, another dean came to meet me in New York. They want to create a comedy club in the dental school. A comedy club in the dental school? Named after me. And I'm like, are you kidding? And uh, of course, they want me to be involved in in raising money to have it happen. I'm like, who's going to go to a comedy club in a dental school? And they said, because the students are under so much stress, and there's a medical school nearby and an optometry school. Most importantly, there's laughing gas nearby. Laughing gas. And they say that they think it would be a very popular thing to have the Jeffrey Gurian Comedy Club. That's terrific. In Temple Dental School. Congratulations. So isn't that interesting? Now, when you get a call from from a gentleman like that, especially when you're thinking that the lunch is going to go one way and then it ends up going another, thankfully. But when you get a call that someone like that is going to take you to lunch— and you get to pick the place. Do you pick a super expensive place for lunch? Do you pick a moderately priced place for lunch? Do That's you pick a cheaper so place? That's so interesting. Do you know what? I chose Michael's. Oh, okay. You're familiar That's with Michael's. very pricey. But it's a very, it's a very special place. And I wanted the dean to experience that place because she had never been to New York before. Oh, okay. Well, that's a great place. And I said, you know what? Because, and she said, I'm going to leave it to you. And I said, you know, um, I've been to Michael's several times, and it's a power lunch place. Oh, yeah. No, you look at every table. Somebody's a somebody. somebody. And and so I wanted her to have a New York experience, and so that's why I go there, and they welcome me. And, you know, they call you before. They confirm, oh, like no, a doctor's that's, office. That's, that's you, a big you, deal. You have to leave your cell number, and you can't just go in there and say that. So I made the reservation. She was going to make it, and I said, you know what? Let me do it to make sure because I didn't want her to get turned away because mm-hmm. if they don't know you, right. you can't exactly. get a table, really. So I went over myself, and I made the reservation, and she thanked me. She said she had the best time. Oh, I'm sure. And the I'm food sure. was amazing, and the service is incredible. The food is always great there. They, I did. They uh, Last time I was there, I ordered a Negroni with Bombay Sapphire, and they charged an extra $3 for the Bombay Sapphire. That's the kind of spot that it is. They're very, very, very particular over there. Very particular. But uh, it's a great spot. That's great. Uh, all right. We're going to continue with Jeffrey Green in a minute. We're going to continue to take your calls at 800-848-9222. And we have some fun news stories from the Gurian News Network that we're going to bring to your attention as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano here with Jeffrey Gurian. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Jimmy 
some advice on how you can be happy. We have the world's foremost authority on happiness, Jeffrey Gurian. He's a comedy writer, a stand-up comic, a host, an author, producer, director, and a former dentist. Uh, he's writing books at a rate that's faster than I can read them. If you want to learn more about uh, what he's doing, you can watch the documentary that I just posted. It's a very short documentary, but it's great. Uh, watch it after the show. Who the F is Jeffrey Gurian? It's on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. You can go to ComedyMattersTV.com, uh, or you could search Jeffrey Gurian on Amazon and check out any of the terrific books that he has on there. Uh, let me say a quick hello to Andy in Maryland. Hello, Andy. Hey, how you doing? We're doing great, Andy. What's on your mind? Uh, I, I just wanted to say thank you for this inspirational uh, program tonight. That really speaks to me. Um, you know, I'm, I'm facing some rough times myself, and it's nothing compared to, uh, you know, anybody else that you've spoken about. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a big deal to me. And um, just wanted to say thank you. You know what? I'm so glad to hear you say that because men don't like to talk about things like that, and they should. And I talk about that a lot, about sensitivity. A lot of men don't want to talk about their feelings and how things affect them. They think it detracts from their masculinity, and it's exactly the opposite. It's very important that men are able to talk about things like that. Uh, it, it doesn't threaten you at all. It just makes you more of a man. So I appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Thank you, Andy. Good luck with everything that you're going through. Keep listening. Keep calling in from time to time. Bob is in Manhattan. Hello, Bob. Hey, good morning. I'm enjoying your show, and I wanted to talk about one of the greatest stutterers of all time that became one of the greatest voices in radio, TV, and movies was James Earl Jones. He overcame that problem. He had a tremendous problem with stuttering. Mm-hmm. I didn't also, know that. Stutter, yeah, yeah. yeah, stutterers sing a lot to get over that. Also, reading out loud is also very important huh. because most stutterers don't stutter when they read out loud. Yeah, well, maybe that's why we he spent so much time reading the New Jersey Bell Yellow Pages, right? <laughs> uh, thank you, Bob. I didn't know. I did not know that. Uh, Jeffrey, you were the progenitor of GNN. GNN is now a global news phenomenon, bigger than CNN, <laughs> bigger than CNN Plus, yeah. bigger than Newsmax, Fox News, and uh, CNBC combined. The motto of the Gurian News Network, GNN, is all the news that's fit to dance to. Uh, It was the inspiration and the source material for one of your many books, Man Robs Bank with His Chin and Other Unusual Stories Missed by Mainstream Media. Now, Jeffrey, it's not unusual for a lot of people that listen to talk radio to become accustomed to uh, media bias and putting a certain spin on the news of the day. But the kind of news stories that you have in this book and which you profile regularly on the Gurian News Network, forget about media bias. These are news stories that have been completely omitted from every news source. Completely overlooked. And I feel that it's terrible. And that's why I wrote this book. And it was the precursor to The Onion. As a matter of fact, the foreword to the book was written by the man who who created The Onion, Scott Dickers, a very famous writer who created The Onion, and I was told by The Onion that Weekly World News, where I used to have a column, it was called Gurian's World of the Bazaar, 
uh, was the precursor to the and it inspired them. Terrific. So well, they have a, a big honor. case uh, before the Supreme Court. I'm eager to see how that uh, how that uh, comes out. Well, give us a couple of stories from the Gurian News Network that people might have missed if they're paying attention to the rest of the news media. Oh, uh, man removes own appendix using beer as anesthetic. Ah, See, ah. He, he had watched many medical shows and he <laughs> diagnosed himself as having appendicitis. And his mother used to clean hospital rooms. And together, they thought that gave them enough experience to remove his own appendix. So they set up an, an ironing board and did the surgery. He used the little, you know, those little forks they use for shrimp cocktail? Right. He, he grabbed his appendix with that, and he actually used dental floss to sew himself up. That's great. And he's doing well now. Doing great. That's and, great. And he wants to teach it in hospitals. But a, a famous surgeon said that surgery is not a party game. He said it's supposed to be done by trained surgeons, not by drunk men with their mothers. <laughs> so, you know, it's a great lesson. Um, elderly man tours Europe on pogo stick. Oh, this okay. Is very, that's creative. Armin Karuji, 87 years old, wears a tuxedo, by the way, when he, when he travels on a pogo stick across the entire continent now, of that's Europe. that's impressive. And, well, you know what? And he feels that athletes don't dress well enough. He said, you know, they're wearing jeans and sport jackets. I, I mean, uh, uh sneakers he feels that they should at least wear a sport jacket which is why it's called a sport jacket right exactly. you're supposed to be wearing it during sports that's what that's what he says 87 years old you can't go wrong that's true i'm gonna have to try that the next time i'm playing softball wear a sports jacket that's pretty good allergic archaeologist accidentally blows his nose in priceless tissue <laughs> now they discovered a tissue from the time of jesus one of the first tissues that was created and he was so excited that you know, and but he caught a cold from being out on the desert. Sure, makes sense. Right. And he was so excited when they found this tissue that he sneezed and accidentally used the priceless tissue to his, you know, to catch the sneeze. So was the tissue ruined? Uh, that'd be a real bummer if that's terrible. The case. He said he said only once before something like that happened when a drunken archaeologist accidentally urinated in a pair of pants from the Stone Age. <laughs> they found the first pair of pants in the world. And he accidentally ruined them. So many stories. Pilot, pilot attempts transatlantic flight using only his beard to control <laughs> the plane. You know the kind of neck muscles you have? Like, I can't, that can't you have imagine. To have? Well, you know, there, I had a great story on uh, man paints replica of the Sistine Chapel with his beard. A lot of beard stories. Yeah, well, I had no idea beards could be so versatile. Well, you know. This guy had a, be a very long, like a three-foot beard, and he would, uh, like, he, he would, uh, what do you call it, mold it into a point. He actually used it as a cane sometimes to support himself. And um, these days, a lot of guys have beards, but they're not the long kind that you can right, use for right, painting. Right, right, You know, this guy actually painted a replica of the Sistine Chapel laying on his back. Amazing. The kind of neck muscles that you need for that is incredible. Now, I, I'm amazed that these stories have not gotten more mainstream press attention. What do you think that's about? Why do you think the mainstream press is ignoring all these stories or missing these stories? Well, it's hard for them to find, first of all. I scour the world. For uh -huh. these Man loses <laughs> legs to tight pants. These are stories <laughs> that a lot of people don't, you know, they just don't hear them. Then. Now, the Weekly World News, where you had a column, they were uh, probably one of the most reputable uh, news sources around. They don't print anymore. Do they do anything online anymore? Yeah, they haven't. They have, well, supposedly, the last that I heard, they had an, uh, 
an online presence, uh-huh. but no longer in print, which I miss. Me I had, too. Me too. I used to. I used to love writing for them. It was one of the best, best they, times of my. A big honor, first of all, to have my own column. Because they said to me, your stories are so unique that you must have your own column. They um, they build themselves as the world's only reliable newspaper. And I think if you look at what's in their paper and what's in some of the other papers, they might be on to something. So, Where um, else would you find stories like tap dancing for the criminally insane, <laughs> right? That, it's, uh, I, I, you know, at a uh, – what do you call it? At a home for the criminally insane in France, they realized that if they could get these violent criminals to tap dance – that that it, it quieted them down. They think it's the vibration of their feet hitting the ground. <laughs> and there's one. They had this one cannibal, Roland Bife. He said, "If only I, if only I hadn't eaten my parents, I could have been the next Monsieur Bojangles." <laughs> uh, Jeffrey, so, the hour has flown by as it always does whenever we're together. I want to encourage everybody to check out some of your work at ComedyMattersTV.com. Uh, to wa- encourage people to watch that documentary, which is on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash MoranoFan. And uh, if you search Gurian on Amazon, G-U-R-I-A-N, you get some of Jeffrey's great books. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you, Frank. Always a pleasure to be on with you. The, the, Can't wait till the next time. The pleasure is all mine. A lot of other interesting stuff to get to for the next three hours. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight where we cover all of the subjects from around the world and beyond the world. Oh, yes, that's right. There is a ton of space news uh, that I have to bring to your attention. Let us begin with India. Uh, we are seeing a new space race, and I'm all for this. Uh, we And it's not done because countries are so eager to further the bounds of scientific and space exploration. I'm sure that's part of it. But a lot of this has to do with the battle to get very valuable minerals from places like the moon and potentially other planets that they can then use for manufacturing on this planet. One of the countries which is trying to become a world leader in leaving this world is India. And there was a lot of high hopes for India's Mars Orbiter Mission, acronym MOM. And it looks like MOM... Not the person, but the Mars Orbiter mission from India may have finally reached the end of its operations after eight years spent orbiting the red planet. Ground stations operated by the Indian Space Research Organization have lost communication with the spacecraft. So the precise cause isn't clear. We don't know why that's the case. The orbiter may have run out of propellant, mom's battery may have uh, been drained beyond the safe operating limit, or an automated maneuver may have cut communications, according to the media. But that's the latest on India and Mars. Let me tell you what's happening with China. This is pretty interesting. Uh, China's satellite ground stations in South America are being expanded dramatically. China has expanded. 
its use of satellite ground stations in South America, leading multiple governments, including our own, to express concern about Beijing's intentions. China's space program, this is why this matters. This is not just we're engaging in some sort of uh, intellectual masturbation by tracking down all the space news. No. China's space program has close but opaque ties to the country's military. And that has fueled a lot of concerns that ostensibly civilian facilities could also be used for intelligence collection and surveillance, maybe even worse. And there's a new report about this, I believe it's from Axios, that raises some concerns about this. NASA's relationship with the U.S. military, for instance, is close, but it's very transparent. At least it's supposedly very transparent. And it's clearly delineated that NASA is not supposed to be used for things like uh, spying on other countries or weaponizing American space technology to shoot at other countries. NASA is in the exploration realm. The report released by the Center for Strategic and International Studies says that China's space network in South America is part of a much broader push by Beijing to establish itself as a leading global space power and a partner of choice in space for middle-income economies. So the big picture on this China space stuff is that satellite ground stations, uh, which is what has expanded dramatically in South America, the Chinese satellite ground stations, Satellite ground stations allow nations and companies to communicate with their spacecraft, receiving information and sending commands to change positions or to point in a specific direction. So the U.S., Russia, other countries, they operate ground stations and lease facilities in other countries. But the lack of information about China's intentions for its stations has some people, including myself, to be honest, pretty concerned about what they're being used for. What do you think this is all being used for? What's it all about, Alfie? 800 Even if you don't have a theory as to why China's doing this and the and if you're not concerned about it, you're welcome to comment. 800 Nations aim to scatter these ground stations around the world uh, especially, you know, maybe next time Dr. Sky is on the show, I'm going to put this on my list of things to uh, ask him about because he is now a, uh, a regular contributor to our show. Nations aim to scatter these ground stations around the world, especially near the equator, because that leads to more robust satellite coverage. But the proximity of the South American facilities in particular to the United States has heightened fears that they can be used to spy on us or at least on U.S. assets or maybe to even intercept sensitive information. This is all in this report, um, <clears throat> and I, I first saw it in Axios, so it's not from Axios. I missaid that. I misspoke earlier. This report is from the release just yesterday by the Center for Strategic and International Studies. So 
several Chinese ground stations in South America have come under scrutiny, according to the report. Espacio Lejano is a ground station in Argentina. It is operated by a Chinese company owned by the People's Liberation Army's Strategic Support Force. The Argentinian government agreed to, quote, not interfere or interrupt any activities the Chinese side carries out there. Well, that does not exactly reassure me. I don't know about you. Geopolitics has always been involved in ground station placement use and control. China shut down its ground station in Kiribati 19 years ago after the Pacific Island nation established relations with Taiwan. China leases some facilities at the Santiago Satellite Station in Chile, which is operated by the Swedish Space Corporation. In 2019, the Swedish Defense Research Agency warned that China might be able to use its cooperation with the Swedish Space Corporation for military intelligence collection. This is three years ago we heard about this. The Swedish Space Corporation has since said it will not renew contracts with China because the geopolitical situation has changed since they were originally signed. The bottom line is this. Terrestrial geopolitics can be just as important as space technology amidst this renewed sense of competition between the United States and China over space. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. That's 1-800-848-9222. So a couple of days ago, I recorded an interview with Franklin Chang Diaz. And for those of you that were listening to our flagship station, 77 WABC, yesterday, you um, you might have heard portions of this interview. If you didn't, are you familiar with Franklin Chang Diaz? Franklin Chang Diaz is an incredible man, incredible human being. Born in Costa Rica, the guy is a mechanical engineer. That's impressive, right? He's not just a mechanical engineer. He's also a physicist. He's not just a physicist. He's also a former NASA astronaut. He's been on seven space shuttle missions, more than anybody. He has t- he's tied the record for the most space flights. He's also a botanist. He, is, he was the first Latin American immigrant ever to go into space. The guy is a pretty impressive guy. So because it was Hispanic Heritage Day on um, 77 WABC, I had the opportunity to interview him uh, because this is somebody that I've admired for a long time. And uh, his ability – and I didn't even get into what he's doing as an entrepreneur. He's developed this whole other life as an entrepreneur. So as an astronaut – um, retired astronaut and a botanist. He's somebody that uh, I've really looked up to. But I just read you uh, the first couple of lines of his resume. He's an, in- an incredible person, an incredibly accomplished person. So whenever I talk with someone like this, the thing that I'm always concerned about for myself, because I think you know if you've listened to this show that I have a, a little bit of an ego, right? 
And I am always concerned about how people stay grounded. Think about that. If you literally go to space, right, and you are someone that has left the planet, you've done what only a handful of things, a handful of people in the history of human civilization has ever done. How do you maintain? It's like that Casey Kasem saying, which I quote from time to time, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground. How do you do that? And that was one of the first questions that I asked uh, Dr. Franklin Chang-Diaz when we had the opportunity to speak a couple days ago. You tied the record for most space flights ever. Uh, you have uh, gotten all sorts of advanced degrees. You've uh, launched, uh, helped launch a major company that's doing a lot of innovative work. How do you manage to stay so humble given everything that you've accomplished, mm-hmm. which is more than most people accomplish in five lifetimes? Well, you know, I guess I, I don't see it as a, as a sum of all these things together building, but it's just a collection of, of, of little adventures and little uh, steps. Uh, my life has always been um, that. It's just a, uh, a series of steps. Um, I always feel that, you know, it's, it's, it's much better to do um, small, uh, frequent uh, steps than just you know occasional big uh, you know leaps um, and 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 that's that has been the story of my life just uh, a collection of one thing after the other and, and most of the things that I've tried to do have failed um, it's only the ones that have, that have been successful that uh, appeared to attract people's attention and um, but I mean a lot of the um, of the journey in life is 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 failure and and you have to be uh willing and ready to take uh those hits and to and to be prepared to fail i, I believe that uh, in order to succeed you have to be you have to learn to fail so this is a bit of a, a bit of the story of my life i thought that was so interesting and honestly and sometimes when i ask a question i can sort of predict what the person I'm asking that question to was going to say, he blew my mind with that response. That about how failure was such an important contributor to his success. And again, I've heard different versions of that from other successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, scientists, athletes, uh, inventors even. But I think the way that he put that was so interesting. So then with him failing so much, question I have for Dr. Franklin Chang Diaz really was how did you become an astronaut, especially back in the seventies when it was a pretty rare thing to be an astronaut? How did you end up uh, becoming an astronaut? Yeah. Well, you know, in the days of, of, of my youth and, and child childhood, you know, astronauts uh, were still, um, somewhat, you know, fictional characters. I mean, the, in, in, the, in the 50s, there were no astronauts, and, and uh, it was not until 61 uh, that the first uh, human was launched into space. It was, uh, uh, it was called a cosmonaut. It was not an astronaut, but a cosmonaut. It was uh, Yuri Gagarin. And um, and then the astronauts from NASA began, began you know, be, were selected, the first seven original astronauts. And, um, you know, they became heroes, instant uh, heroes of, 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 of 
myself and and all my friends and all my my contemporaries and um you know the the the, the sort of the format uh, as you pointed out uh, they were all military pilots and i was growing up in a country that uh, that does not have a military force and here in costa rica there is no um that was not an option to um you know to follow a military career and and, and so my mother in in all her wisdom um always clearly understood that uh, astronauts had to be technical technical people engineers and, and ultimately scientists and i think the the image of a, of the astronaut for me was gradually gradually sort of shaped into that into uh, essentially a uh, you know, uh, an explorer, more like a polar explorer, uh, and and that um, moved me into the into the technical field, uh, engineering, science, and those were the kinds of things I liked. Um, and, and so that's how that's how the um, the you know the career was uh, shaped um, for me. So I thought that was pretty interesting. I don't know if you um, caught the story of uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar criticizing uh, Kyrie Irving. And again, I I have to uh, stress and repeat my knowledge of basketball, uh, professional basketball at the moment is less than zero. I, I don't follow the NBA. I think I can name most of the teams if you gave me a city I think I could name uh, most of the franchises associated with that city. That being said, um, some of the newer franchises, I don't think I could name. You know, what what team is the uh, – where do the Grizzlies pay, play now? I have no idea. I just looked up the New Orleans Pelicans. I, 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 if you said what sport do the New Orleans Pelicans play – and you asked me on the thousand dollar minute. If you said, "I'm just going to give you a thousand dollars," if you if you if you could tell me what sport the New Orleans Pelicans play, I would not have been able to tell you. So the point is, I don't pretend to be a an expert when it comes to basketball, but I am familiar with a lot of prominent basketball players. Now, I'm familiar with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar because he scored so many points and he's become sort of a larger than life personality. He's one of these people that we've talked about in previous segments who started out as a basketball star, and he's been able to transcend beyond basketball. One of the other people that I'm familiar with as an NBA player is Kyrie Irving. The reason I'm familiar with Kyrie Irving is I I think I initially became familiar with him, and don't quote me on this. I think I initially became familiar with him because he was one of these people that thought that the earth was flat, which I I don't think that it is. Um, But then he became somebody that... uh, um, and I think he backed off those comments, but um, I, I don't quote me on that. He became sort of a symbol for people that didn't want to get vaccinated or really sort of a, a cause celeb for folks that were didn't didn't like the vaccine mandates because he got benched. He, he refused to get vaccinated and he gave a very sound rationale as to why. And he wasn't able to play in New York when New York had all those vaccine mandates. Well, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote an op-ed piece reacting to Kyrie Irving, not only his refusal to take the COVID vaccine, 
but posting a clip from controversial media personality Alex Jones, who, by the way, we're going to have on the show. And I know that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, but that's what we do. We're going to have Alex Jones on the show sooner rather than later. And it's Alex Jones discussing um, an alleged group of powerful figures attempting to create a new world order. So according to Abdul-Jabbar, who had previously written about Kyrie's refusal to take the COVID vaccine, the Brooklyn Nets guard would be deemed a comical buffoon for his remarks and actions, if not for his stature as a basketball player. But this is what Kareem Abdul-Jabbar said in his uh, Substack piece, which was published three days, three, two days ago. He said, <clears throat> quote, Kyrie Irving would be dismissed as a comical buffoon if it weren't for his influence over young people who look up to athletes. Now, um, he's right in the latter part of what he said. People do look up to athletes, whether we're talking people like Muhammad Ali, Arthur Ashe, Billy Jean King, LeBron James, even folks like Colin Kaepernick, all of whom are cited in this Kareem Abdul-Jabbar piece, Bill Russell as well. People do tend to look up to athletes, especially if athletes are groundbreaking in some way, as Arthur Ashe was for black athletes, as Billie Jean King was for female athletes, as Muhammad Ali was for black athletes and for Muslims. And um, I was talking to Franklin Chang Diaz, who, as I mentioned, went to space more times than anybody and was also the first Latin American immigrant selected by NASA to be an astronaut. I said to him, do you view yourself as a role model because look you were the first if you're a little hispanic child an immigrant to this country you don't exactly have a whole wall full of astronauts to look at but you do have franklin chang diaz so i asked him about what he views as his own role in being a role model for hispanics did you view yourself as a role model for other young Hispanic children that might want to be an astronaut someday? Because like it or not, that's exactly what you became. Yeah, exactly right. Uh, I, I do now, uh, Frank. I, I do now. I didn't before. Um, I did not seek, um, you know, this, this particular uh, position as an astronaut in order to be a role model for anybody. Um I was just, you know, trying to live my own dream. Uh, but things have changed uh, completely. Uh, the moment that uh, I became an astronaut, um, I, I saw in the eyes of, um, you know, many of the uh, young children that came close to me when I went, went back to, uh, to Costa Rica and, and, and also back in the United States and the, the young young kids and you know, it is a huge responsibility, and and I'm, I'm sure the astronauts uh, that were my heroes were not also expecting to be heroes either. Uh, they were just enjoying and doing the thing that they wanted to do. But once you become an astronaut, uh, you you have to accept that uh, that you do have the responsibility to keep that chain um, unbroken and to instill that, um, you know, that passion and that desire for young people to, you know, to achieve their dreams just like you did. 
Now, obviously, whenever I interview anybody, astronaut or no astronaut, I'm curious about the kind of things that you don't typically get asked about in interviews, right? And um, obviously, as you could tell by my less than impressive waistline at the moment, one of the things that tends to interest me is food. So I talked to him, if you're spending all this time in space, and I'm playing some highlights of my, we're talking space, and if you want to comment on any of the space stories that I just brought to your attention, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222, that's 800-848-9222. By the way, Michael from Manhattan emails me about what I brought to your attention with China and this report on their space activities. He says, assume the worst with China. Their Confucius study centers are proven spy centers and universities are starting to close them. So that's interesting. So I can't speak for the truth of what uh, Michael said, but that's his take. So I talked to uh, Franklin Chang Diaz about what he missed most in terms of food while up there in space. When you're in space, when you're floating around the uh, the space shuttle, what food on Earth do you miss the most? What did you crave the most? <laughs> you know, I really wanted to have a hamburger. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the one thing that I really crave in my my flights. Um, and, and not that I am that. I mean, I was born in Costa Rica. We don't have a lot of hamburgers here. But for some reason, uh, you know, I lived in the U- U.S. now most of my life, um, and uh, it is the one thing that um, that you kind of miss, at least for me. Gotcha. Other gotcha. people really wanted to have a pizza, and those are the kinds of things that really, <laughs> you know, come to they come to you after you're floating in space oh, I, and going the food I can there. imagine. I can imagine. This is the last bit that I'll play for you from this interview, and I've just. Um, shared on Facebook at facebook.com slash Morano fan, our whole conversation, I think it was about 25 minutes. I'm not going to play it all for you now, but I just play, I'm not going to, I'm not going to play it on the radio. If you want to hear the whole interview, um, you can just go to my Facebook page. It's also available at uh, wabcradio.com. You can hear our whole discussion. We get into what it's like being in zero gravity. We get into what it's like, um, Uh, You know, in terms of space junk, we get into what it's like in terms of the future of cooperation between the U.S. space program and the Russian space program. We get into everything uh, with respect to space. But most of us are never going to go. So if you want to hear the whole interview, go to my Facebook page. It's up there. Facebook.com slash Morano fan. I'm also going to put it on Twitter at Frank Morano. I haven't had a chance to link to it yet, but it it will be up there. Frank Morano. Um, After the show, listen, because we want you to listen to everything that I'm doing. Most of us are never going to go to space. Most of my knowledge about space comes from motion pictures. So I am always interested in learning. Whenever I ask anybody anything, politicians, mafia figures, lawyers, uh, and astronauts, I always ask, what's the most realistic picture about this? Because whenever you get anybody in any field, a lawyer, mobster, engineer, whatever. The the first thing I always tell you is how inaccurate almost everything you see in film and on television is. CIA, military. So I'm always curious whenever I have a, a um, an opportunity to interview anybody that's been there before, wherever there is, in this case it's space, what are the most realistic space pictures? 
And I thought Franklin Chang Diaz's answer was pretty realistic. Now, remember, he went to space in for the first time in the early 70s. So that's his perspective. And that's why I think he made an interesting comment when I asked him what the most realistic picture was with respect to outer space. What do you think is the most realistic depiction of what it's like to either be an astronaut or to go to space? Apollo 13. Really? You know, Apollo 13? Apollo 13 is probably the closest one that I've seen where the narration and the way things actually are de- depicted in the, in the movie um, are extremely close to, um, to the real thing. So they did a really good job. Apollo 13. Now, again, keep in mind the events depicted in that picture were just a few years before his first uh, trip to space. So it kind of makes sense that if they did a good job capturing that era, that he would think that was the um, the most realistic depiction. So that was interesting. And I actually want to – I haven't – I saw Apollo 13 in theaters. I've seen it once or twice since it's been out of theaters. But um, it's been many years, maybe even a couple of decades, since I've seen Apollo 13. I'd like to rewatch it now, especially after that interview with Franklin Chang Diaz. But, again, if you want to hear the whole thing where we get into weightlessness, a bunch of other things, you can uh, go to my Facebook page and uh, share it. And if you like it, that'll help other people see it as well. If you comment on it, that'll help other people see it as well. I am convinced that um, these algorithms that these big social media companies are using, that's why there is no bigger cheerleader than me that Elon Musk is going forward with this Twitter deal. Because I am convinced that because of the things that I have posted, uh, and I don't post anything crazy. I certainly would never post anything mean Um, But because of the things that I have posted that are out of the box, that are controversial, I believe that I am being uh, algorithmically suppressed, certainly on Twitter, because it used to be I'd tweet something, all of a sudden I'd get likes, I'd get retweets, I'd get comments. You know what I hear now? I hear crickets. Crickets. Um, Facebook, I have not noticed as much of a disparity I've noticed on Facebook if I post an open-ended question like uh, what's your favorite pizza place or something, they will people will comment, people will see it in their news feed. But it is interesting. So if, the only way that I am able to break through that Facebook algorithm is if people intentionally go to my page and they'll share the content that's on there. So I'm asking you to do that. Uh, Facebook.com slash Morano fan and on Twitter at Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Hey, we're going to continue with your calls in just a minute. I'm sorry to rant so much, but I had a lot on my mind. Doris, Carol, uh, Jane, whomever, we'll get to you in just a minute. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight Straight Ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. You've come to tell me 
take my man. This is the great Loretta Lynn, a country legend, a coal miner's daughter, singer. I don't think she was actually a coal miner's daughter, but she definitely became a symbol of um, rural resilience. And this was, um, I guess she was a coal miner's daughter, right? I mean, but um, she passed away yesterday at the age of 90. 90. Can you imagine? Uh, Yeah, she was a coal miner's daughter, and her father passed away at the age of 52 from black lung disease. So um, a sad upbringing, I'm sure she had. But this particular song, You Ain't Woman Enough to Steal My Man, she's great, obviously. This is a great rendition of it. But if you want to see a great rendition of this, you need to um, hear The Rock and his version of this song. The Rock, in addition to being a great pro wrestler, he's been one of these people that has made the transition to the world of Hollywood. And he is in a phenomenal film. I liked it. Um, Some people did not. Called Be Cool, which is a sequel to Get Shorty. And The Rock plays sort of an effeminate tough guy in that picture. And he does a version of this song. And I have to tell you, it's not exactly... This is a beautiful song, the way Loretta Lynn does it. The way The Rock does it, it's not bad. You certainly wouldn't say it's beautiful, but it is hysterical. It's hysterical. So you can find it on the YouTube, or if you get an opportunity to see that picture, uh, Be Cool. I definitely recommend seeing Get Shorty first, and then Be Cool. Get Shorty, by the way, a fine film featuring pre-Sopranos James Gandolfini. James Gandolfini um, is plays a character bear in that picture, and uh, he's great. He's great in that picture, and the, the scenes that he has with John Travolta are phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. I, I talked about that. I met Travolta once, and we he was a great guy. Until I met Kelsey Grammer, I would venture to say that John Travolta was the nicest celebrity that I've ever met. met. And we talked a little bit about that picture and um, privately, and he had some interesting insights into that picture. All right, 800-848-9222. It's 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Carol in Harlem. Hello, Carol. Oh, hi. How are you? Great. How are you, Carol? Oh, hi. Thank you. What I wanted to say was um, I think we do children in injustice when we talk about space. At NASA, too, they need to change the way they talk about space because – we say we are launching a rocket into space, but we are in space already. Well, that's a. I, I get what you mean, and I guess technically you, you're right. So, what would you what would you suggest the terminology be that we use when we talk about interstellar travel or exploration of planets and stars beyond our world? I think we should just say we're going to the moon. Going to the moon or going to Mars or going to Saturn. Yes. But how about because something? A lot of people Go ahead. don't realize that we are there already. They think that we're tethered to a fence in Coney Island. They think they think what? <laughs> it's like we're tethered to a fence in Coney Island. Oh, that, well, you're right. Look, you're right, Carol. <laughs> we're definitely part of uh, this galaxy and the universe just as much as anybody else uh, does. But um, with, whether it's NASA, whether it's me, whether it's Elon Musk and other folks, I think, um, you know, when we talk about space, and thanks for the call, Carol, we're not trying to make it sound like we're not part of this whole thing. 
I guess it's just kind of a a neat thing. Whenever you talk about things going on on this planet versus everywhere that's not this planet, you know, it's uh, you got to make some sort of distinction. And I don't have a problem with people using the term space. I, I'm still probably going to use it. But uh, I, I think your broader point, Carol, is uh, well taken that we need to always keep in mind that we're on this we're just the third rock from the sun right just like the tv show we're we're flying around on a giant spinning globe just the way martians are right 800-848-9222 doris is in the boogie down bronx hello doris hi frank morano um i listen to your show a lot and i listen to um curtis silva too well, like the, there's no accounting for taste in either of those radio programs. But thank you, Doris, for listening. <laughs> yeah, and I I was listening to you about space and, you know, um, the Hispanic that um, went in the 70s and stuff. And I've always been fascinated about going to the moon or, you know, seeing stars and stuff. But I've, I, I feel it's so far from regular people. It's just so distant and... I think that they should, you know, put that money that whatever money they're using to go up in space, you know, to help people, like help people that what's going on in the city and stuff like that. And, um, you know, with people, you know, being crazy and hurting people and, you know, the subway stations being, you know, places of violence and stuff. I think they should put instead of spending money trying to go somewhere else, I think they should put their money and trying to help people. Doris, you know? there's a lot of people that uh, believe exactly as you do. And um, I, 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 you know, you make a very compelling case. And um, I, ultimately, I disagree for a few reasons. And, um, and here's why, right? One, if you look at the incredible innovations that have helped so many people because of NASA's role in funding research that was specifically funded for the space program, there's very serious real-world implications of this. Uh, artificial limbs, for instance. You heard Jeffrey Gurian tell the story about that actress uh, who had artificial limbs. Um, artificial limbs were based on innovations designed for space vehicles. Scratch-resistant lenses, that's something that was uh, des- came about as a result of the money that was pumped into NASA and the space program. The insulin pump, uh, something that helps friends of mine that are, that are diabetic. That's a result of the space program. A whole bunch of firefighting equipment, the polymers that are created for use in spacesuits, they've been really valuable in creating flame-retardant, heat-resistant suits for uh, firefighters. Even, this may sound silly, but in the Murano household, when you have a, a wife that's obsessive with cleaning, the dust buster, that came about as a result of the um, of the space program. LASIK. Really? La- yeah, laser eye well, surgery. I just, feel like, I just feel like all of that technology is so far from regular people. You know, well, not the dustbuster, I, certainly, right? I, 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 yeah, well, yeah, I guess that's a good idea. But I, I just feel like all that technology, I've gone to college and I've gone to school here in New York City in Manhattan, and I've never had, um, like, hands-on, let me, you know, and I've never heard anyone, you know, have hands-on, like, you know, or at least people come and, you know, talk about these things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I hear but, you, Doris. Uh, One other thing that um, regular people use every day which came about as a result of being invented by NASA scientists, believe it or not, was baby formula. 
the, the way baby formula, the algae-based vegetable oil that was invented by NASA scientists that's used in baby formula today, um, that was based on the work that's done by the, the space uh, program. But, Doris, I get it. I get exactly what you're saying. Um, the other thing I'll just add is let's say everything that I just said is totally bogus. Let's say that's all nonsense. Two, as I mentioned earlier, when we have India and China racing to go to the Mars and the moon, they're not, or the United Arab Emirates, they're not doing it for altruistic reasons. They're not doing it for, they're not exploring for exploration's sake. The material that's on the moon, that's on potentially other planets, is so incredibly valuable to technology that's being manufactured on this planet now, uh, mobile phones, uh, electric vehicles, all sorts of things that uh, countries like China, the the so-called rare earths, that countries like China have uh, a a lot of wealth in. And in the Middle East, they have a lot of wealth. There's a ton of that stuff in space and and on other planets. There really is. So... Uh, understanding that it costs a lot to go to space, and I'm not discounting that. It's a legitimate point and one that a lot of people have made. Um, There's a lot of potential return. And look, maybe it's my gambler's mentality with that, but um, it's pretty big uh, that we can potentially get access to all all these riches. And um, and the, the last two things I'll say. One of the things that the space program has meant for domestic harmony on this planet is that it has created a situation where you have different countries cooperating with one another for a shared goal. Americans and Russians, two countries which for decades had nuclear missiles pointed at one another, and now there's a very real chance of use of nuclear weapons if you listen to people like General Petraeus and Vladimir Putin. Um, they were able to cooperate on the space program. And I think that's a phenomenal thing for countries to aspire to do together. And it's, it's created and fostered an environment of international cooperation that I don't know would have been possible without interstellar travel. And this is the last thing I'll mention on this front. I know people love to discount climate change and... Uh, the fact that the earth is getting warmer and that the fact that we're we're seeing rising ocean levels and things like that. I, I don't want to get into a whole climate change debate, but as far as I am concerned, there's some very real concerning things about the future of this planet. But whatever. I don't want to make this a whole carbon discussion about climate change. I know people disagree. Fine. OK, I'm not going to I'm not a scientist. I'm not going to spend time trying to convince you of that. But. There is, I don't know whether it's 100 years, 500 years, or 1,000 years. There is a very real possibility that for human civilization to continue, we may need to look at colonizing other planets. And uh, look, I'm looking at what's going on in Ukraine and Russia, and I am terrified, absolutely terrified, that we're now talking about the use of nuclear weapons again. And that is enough to wipe out human civilization. And yet the the 
extent of the helpful hand that we get from the government on this is a public service campaign that says, well, if there's a nuclear attack, stay indoors, and if you have a basement, use it. I mean, that doesn't exactly inspire inspire confidence in me. So when I see that we're getting closer and closer to trying to blow ourselves up on this planet, I think it's all the more reason that it's important for us to look outward. But that's just me. I respect those that disagree and have a differing view. Those of you that are on hold, I'm going to get to you in a second. 800-848-9222. Meantime, for those of us that do care about what's on this earth, a very big day yesterday in the history of American sports. By now, you've heard it. It is probably six hours old by now. But New York Yankees outfielder Aaron Judge has broken... The American League record for most home runs in a single season. Here's uh, WFAN's John Sterling with the call. Swung on. There it goes. Deep left. It is high. It is far. It is gone. Number 62 to set the new American League record. Aaron Judge hits his 62nd. All the Yankees out of the dugout to greet him. So, 60-second home run, the first American League player ever to do it, the first New York Yankee ever to do it, and uh, he has now broken that American League record. He still does not hold the all-time record for most home runs in a single season, but the people that have hit more home runs than him in a single season, namely Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, and Barry Bonds, while they Barry Bonds holds the record, those records have all been uh, somewhat tainted by uh, the serious allegations that uh, they've used steroids. So um, congratulations to Aaron Judge. What a relief it must be for him not to have all this pressure on him at every at-bat, especially going into the playoffs now. So I'm glad. imagine if he didn't hit that home run and he ended the season tied with Roger Maris with 61, what that might have been. Also, uh, a great relief to... Um, the Maris family, who's been having to travel all over the world and follow the Yankees around so they could be there when he broke the record. They had to go to Toronto. They had to go to New York. They had to go to Texas. Now they can just go wherever they want to go at this point. So congratulations to the Maris family. They don't have to do this anymore. And you know who else was having to follow the Yankees all over the place? was the fellow that I just played for you, John Sterling. John Sterling, certainly no stranger to New York radio audiences. He's been on WABC for years, WMCA for years, and now on WFAN, CBS 880. He is a little long in the tooth, right? And until this Aaron Judge race for the record was happening, he didn't go on the road. So I'm sure he's pretty uh, relieved. And by the way, we were talking a little bit about who was – who was catching the Aaron Judge home run ball and what they would do with it. Apparently, the ball was caught by a 20-year-old by the name of... um, Actually, no, uh, the fan who caught uh, Aaron Judge's 60-second home run, that was the previous home run, uh, was caught by a 20-year-old. The fan that caught the the ball is named Corey Humans, and uh, he was escorted from his seats by security... And when he was asked by reporters about his plans for the ball, he appeared to be too caught up in the moment to reveal them. So he hasn't said whether he's going to keep it, whether he's going to sell it, whether he's going to donate it or what he's going to do. People are saying that this ball could be worth $2 million. 
So um, it's very interesting. We were having this debate in my house the other day. My sister said, no doubt about it, she's a young person. She's, I think, 25. She said she would sell it. Uh, so uh, she said she needs that long-term financial security. Maybe Corey Humans will do the same thing. We'll see. I don't know. And by the way, congratulations as well to New York's other baseball team, the New York Metropolitans, who have now remembered how to play baseball. I guess all it takes is to, is to play the worst team in your division, the Washington Nationals. They won both games of a doubleheader. And coming off that uh, horrible defeat where they were swept by the Braves, it's nice to see. We'll take your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight Straight Ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. How do you make a vacation last? How do you hold on to the joy, the clarity, the calm? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba Effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Version done by uh, Pink, Maya, and Christina Aguilera, who, by the way, I'll point out, was born on Staten Island. Christina Aguilera, absolutely, born on Staten Island. It's one of the many things she and I have in common. One of the many things. Um, Yesterday was a big day in our country. Yesterday was National Taco Day. And it was also, I didn't know this, it was my feast day. The name Frank or Francis, it was my feast day. I would have mentioned that yesterday. But um, yesterday was not just National Taco Day, but it was Taco Tuesday. Now, that's very rare when Taco Tuesday and National Taco Day fall upon the same date. I believe it only happens once every seven years, maybe even less than that. So we, my wife and I did not realize that yesterday was National Taco Day. So we had tacos on Monday. And my wife said to me, do we dare? Do we dare do tacos two days in a row? Well, let me tell you, we dared. And we dared greatly. And uh, my wife did a stellar job. She made shrimp tacos, which were delicious. And we, um, we had two different varieties. We had the, both the soft shell tacos and the hard shell tacos. When I was a child, I don't know about you, when I was a child, you didn't see soft shell tacos anywhere. Now, I think soft shell tacos have almost become the norm. Uh, the, or the standard, and you have to. If you want something different, you have to ask for it. But uh, I hope you had a great taco night as well, or a great uh, taco Tuesday. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Marianne is in Queens. Hello, Marianne. Good night. How are you? I'm well, oh, Marianne. What's you on your mind? Great, um, you have a beautiful show today. I love it. Thank you. Um, 
Yeah, you, you know, uh, Frank, uh, I believe that taking money from NASA and uh, to use it to help people could be a great thing. But the experience that we have taking money from one place to give it to another doesn't help at all. For example, De Blasio was giving uh, $1 billion that he gave to his wife to help people with mental problems. Only $150 million was accounted for, and the rest, $850 million, nobody knows what it is. Yeah, Marion, that's a that's a that's a great point. And you know, you mentioning uh, for people that don't live in New York City, uh, Marion's talking about the Thrive New York City program, and New York City actually has a requirement under the law that it has to balance its budget. So if New York doesn't have the money to pay for the billion dollars of Thrive, it's got to come up with it somehow. The United States government, the national government, has no such requirement. So that's why they're able to just borrow and borrow and borrow from countries like China or just invent this money out of digital thin air. We'll continue with your calls in just a moment. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Hey, did you ever take um, organic chemistry in college? I never did because it was not my interest. It was not my expertise. It, uh, I found it was not my thing, right? I went to a college. See, I went to New York University and the division of NYU that I went to, and I think maybe the whole college or the whole university, but the college that I went to was called Gallatin, is called Gallatin. It required you to have at least one science or math credit to graduate, at least one class that was science or math. And I am not a mathematically inclined or scientifically inclined guy, okay? I don't, I don't have that. It's not my thing. So I found the least science science class that I could find just so I could take the course and graduate. I think it was called Science and Democracy. And it was interesting. It was interesting, but it was more about, about history and politics and government and different sorts of things. It, there was some science in there, but it was the least science class that I could find. And I passed it and I was able to graduate. But I am looking at what is going on at New York University right now. And I am absolutely disgusted because I don't think this is a situation that is unique to NYU. This is a situation which I fear is far too prevalent on campuses across the country. Let me tell you what happened. Have you heard about this? Maitland Jones Jr. was a professor of chemistry at Princeton University. In Very accomplished professor. One of the most sought after chemistry professors in the whole country, taught at Princeton, Ivy League school. In 2007, he basically semi-retired. And he began teaching organic chemistry 
at New York University on an adjunct basis. Basis. What that means, if you're not up in the latest academic terms, is he taught there part time. It was basically a, a hobby for him. Basically, a part time job. Uh, I'm not trying to diminish the importance of adjuncts. Most of my favorite professors were adjuncts because most of them were people that had some real world experience in journalism or in politics or in television and writing, whatever the case may be. And they would do that as um, basically kind of a side hustle. Uh, So I'm not trying to dismiss adjuncts. But this fellow was an adjunct at NYU. Well, not anymore. New York University has fired Jones. After students circulated a petition protesting that his class was too hard. But according to Professor Jones, the students were not putting in enough effort. And they had become disengaged, anxious, and indolent as a result of the pandemic. Quote, they weren't coming to class, that's for sure. They weren't watching the videos, and they weren't able to answer the questions. Jones is profiled in a recent New York Times article that chronicles his firing, and the piece also raises a lot of uncomfortable questions about what colleges are doing. These elite institutions like NYU, their devotion to appeasing unreasonable student demands. Now, usually we hear about this with respect to cancel culture or with respect to political correctness, the students circulate a petition that says, all right, we want to remove lucky charms from the uh, the campus cafeteria because it's discriminatory towards Irish people. Usually that's what we hear about. But here, the mob, the mob of students whose parents are paying fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year in tuition, maybe more, the mob has won. NYU has bowed to the mob. Organic chemistry is the bane of a lot of medical students' existence everywhere, precisely because it's such a hard class. But a lot of doctors would tell you, that's the point. The class is designed to act as a sort of a gatekeeper, preventing underqualified students from entering the field of medicine. Do you want a doctor? That hasn't passed organic chemistry? I don't. I want it to be tough. So um, Alice Drieger is a bioethicist and a former professor of medical humanities. She tweeted this New York Times article and she said simply, and I agree with her, this article made my skin crawl. We aren't going to end up with good doctors by letting undergrad pre-meds pass organic chem because universities want to protect their U.S. news rankings. She's exactly right. This is crazy. According to the New York Times, 82 of Jones's 350 students signed the petition last spring. It alleged that too many of them were failing and that this was unacceptable. The students cited emotional and mental health complaints... (laughs) to make the case that Jones ought to make the class less difficult. Quote, this is from the petition. We urge you to realize 
that a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students' learning and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole. Close quote. The Times article suggests that throughout the pandemic, Jones made a number of accommodations for struggling students. He reduced the difficulty of his exams, but students were still failing them. Quote, students were misreading exam questions at an astonishing rate from Jones. The article does note that the petition never called for Jones to be fired, but the university apparently decided that that's the best way to resolve this situation. Turn him loose. This is crazy. I mean, I just I can't believe I'm reading you this story. This departure of one of the finest chemistry, not departure, this firing of one of the finest chemistry professors in the country is a huge blow to NYU's academic reputation and their caliber. This guy is a lion in the field of organic chemistry. He has published, he's had a 40-year career. He has published 225 papers. He literally wrote the textbook, Organic Chemistry, which weighs in at 1,300 pounds. Uh, Excuse me, 1,300 pages, not 1,300 pounds, 1,300 pages. This is nuts. A, a professor of chemistry at NYU by the name of Paramijit Arora, who's also a former colleague of Jones, told the New York Times, Jones learned to teach at a time when the goal was to teach at a very high and rigorous level. We hope that students will see that putting them through that rigor is doing them good. NYU clearly feels differently. This is nuts. This is nuts. You know, it's funny. I remember when I was a freshman at NYU, and uh, the the college at NYU that I went to was not big on tests. And I was uh, describing to my father and stepmother how none of the courses that I was taking um, gave tests, right? And um, my stepmother remarked to my father, she kind of sighed because it was a lot different when she went to college. And she didn't go to a college that had the same kind of reputation that New York University had. She kind of sighed and shrugged and turned to my dad and she said, no, you're, you're paying for that. How do you feel about that? And um, I think my dad said something to the effect of, well, you know, that's not the kind of students that NYU wants. NYU doesn't want students that are going to fail anything. NYU wants the kind of students that are going to be able to have their parents keep affording this kind of tuition. And I think that's true to some extent. And I think that is why NYU has behaved in the manner that they have here. Um, John Beckman, a spokesperson for New York University, wrote a statement to Reason magazine. NYU had in Professor Maitland Jones a faculty member with a one-year appointment specifically to teach organic chemistry. In one of his organic chemistry classes in the spring of 2022, there were, among other troubling indicators, a very high rate of student withdrawals, a student petition signed by 82 students, course evaluation scores that were by far the worst, not only among members of the chemistry department, but among all the university's undergraduate science courses, and multiple student complaints about his dismissiveness, 
unresponsiveness, condescension, and opacity about grading. So Beckman continued, and maybe some of you agree with him, and I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. After all, look, NYU wants students that are going to enjoy their time there, right? Want students that are going to enthusiastically keep paying that tuition. What good is it if all these students want to withdraw withdraw from the classes that their professors are teaching? Why should they keep people like that, right? That's the counterargument. 800-848-9222. So Beckman, the spokesman for NYU, continued. So what exactly would be the argument for renewal of this appointment? NYU has lots of hard courses and lots of tough graders among the faculty. They don't end up with outcomes like this. Surely among the many things a university should stand up for, including academic freedom, academic rigor, and a robust research enterprise, one of them should be good teaching. Good teaching, in the words of Mr. Beckman, shouldn't uh, be pitted against rigor as an excuse for poor teaching. Good teaching and rigor are perfectly compatible, and the latter is not a threat to the former at NYU. What say you? 800-848-9222. The question is not whether students deserve good teachers. Of course they do. But whether good teachers should feel compelled to pass students who fail to demonstrate mastery of extraordinarily difficult subjects that they're teaching. And that's where I feel like the rubber is meeting the road here. Um, Maitland Jones wrote, um, excuse me, leftist author and teacher Freddie DeBoer wrote this. Celebrated organic chemistry professor Maitland Jones Jr. had had high standards, and we can't have that in 2022. NYU students who are... By any rational measure, some of the most privileged people on planet Earth organized a petition and got him fired. I hope you never get treated by one of the doctors who emerges from this class. Absolutely. Freddie DeBoer's view, uh, and he's got a substack as well. Freddie DeBoer's view on this is exactly my view. I think he nailed it. 800-848-9222. I'm going to uh, link on Facebook if you want to read Freddie DeBoer's. Uh, and again, I, again, I want to stress this is a left-wing guy. I think he's a socialist, but it, his view is exactly the right one in my judgment. If you want to read it, I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash Morano Fan. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me begin with Peter in the Bronx. Hello, Peter. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Good. Intro. I took intro to organic chemistry at SUNY Oneonta 30 years or so, 30 years ago or so, and it was one of the hardest classes I ever took. I needed a tutor to pass it uh, along with my roommate and all of my classmates. We, everybody struggled. It's, it's, it's a hard subject, and you have to show up and learn the formulas. It's that simple. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So what's your take on what happened with Maitland Jones and New York University? Um, the, the students have to show up, like he said, and, and do the work. Um, yeah, I wouldn't want to go to a doctor, graduate from NYU at this point. Yeah, same here. Peter, thanks. Yeah. It's great to talk with you. John is in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, what's up, Frank? Pleasure as always. Likewise. Um, 
I gotta say, I guess I'm considered a, a millennial, but I was born in the '90s. I mean, the kids today—they're just so lazy. They don't want to work. They don't want to do anything. I think the college classes—they're supposed to be hard, supposed to challenge you. You want a good grade, you gotta work for it. And the kids, like, <laughs> I feel like a grandpa. Kids these days—they do not want to do anything. They just want to be on their phones and play games and not do work. So what do you think the solution is, John? Solution? Uh, you know, if, they don't, if they're not going to uh, graduate the class, I mean, if they're not going to pass the class, they're not going to graduate. And uh, that's it. They're not going to get a job. They want a good job. They want the degree. They're going to have to work for it. Let them get out of school if they, if they don't want it. John, I, I agree with you. I agree with you completely. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. JR is in Brooklyn. Hello there, JR. Good morning, Frank. How are you, sir? Um, This is a direct, this is like defogging the mirror of what the upcoming young professionals will be. Completely lazy. Everything will be handed to them. It's like, they just look at a menu, and if enough people don't like an item on a menu, the chef in the restaurant may take it off. But now they're doing it with science that they're just too lazy to cook. It's like the chef saying, I don't want to cook hamburgers anymore. It takes too long. I'm a New York City detective, and I can retire within about three years or less. I cannot wait to get into the private sector and take advantage of this poor work ethic <laughs> that is being taught throughout colleges, not only Ivy League, but everywhere else, and showing up and saying, look, you know what, I don't have the degree that you might get out of NYU. But they basically just paid for it. They didn't learn anything either, and they're not going to show up because, according to them, they don't have to work as too hard. Well, Jer, what do you make of um, what the spokesperson for the university is saying here? That, look, uh, this is a guy that received the worst evaluations from students, all sorts of complaints. Students were all dropping his class. If you're the college, I mean, why do you want to keep a professor who has all the students dropping out of his class? Well, I think it's because they, first of all, I'd like to see how many when they say all the students, like how big of a petition about hundreds, dozens, you know what I mean? I don't know the ca- how many Well, students. so eight, out of the 350 students that he had, 82 withdrew from his class. And, and NYU says that was far and away more than any other professor had. Okay, so it's also probably one of the harder subjects as well. So what's worth more? This is the way I was thinking about it as you were speaking. What is worth more monetarily, his salary from NYU or the money being brought in from the number of students paying tuition? Yeah, it's a good question, and it's one that I don't have an answer for. Thank you, JR. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Hello, hello, Tom. Yes, uh... I had trouble with chemical engineering, thermodynamics. I ended up being a landlord with dietary problems. Well, I can understand that, Tom. And uh, I am uh, wishing you the best of luck with those uh, dietary problems. You should definitely try Life Change Tea. It's helped me a little bit. Bryce is in Brooklyn. Hello, Bryce. Good morning, Frank. How you doing? Doing great. Thanks. 
Um, I just want to comment on a professor from NYU that was fired. I think he was scapegoated. I mean, I, I'm no rocket scientist, but algebra kicked my butt in school, so I can only Im- imagine what organic chemistry will do. But um, it just shows you how much focus we emphasis, how much emphasis we put on education and, and other things that, you know, the students have more power over the teacher. So that would just produce more people that's probably not as qualified in a certain profession as they should be. So well, hey, you well, shouldn't have been fired. Well said there, Bryce. Thank you. Uh, our friend Obi Murray calling in to comment. Hello, Obi. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Uh, great show as always. Uh, thank so, you. I've got... I've got a graduate degree from the real estate school from Shack at NYU. Oh, really? Okay. My, fir- my first night of grad school, I'm in this class. There's about 10 or 12 of us there. And someone looks on the board and sees this name on the board. He's like, uh-oh, I'm out of here. Someone goes, really? Is that bad? Yeah, I'm out of here too. People started – they heard about this guy. They left. Herve Kevinites. I took the class. I couldn't change it. I was full-time. Couldn't change my schedule. It was the toughest B I ever got in my life. Mm-hmm. Fast forward, I became his graduate assistant. He's on the board of he was on the board with uh, of Rexin, publicly traded company, economics teacher, fantastic, one of the greatest experiences I ever had. I stuck it out, but it was tough. It was so so tough. So, so needless to say, it sounds it, it sounds like you think that uh, the university's making a mistake by letting this professor go. They're making a mistake. The students that are are handling it that way, I think, are making a mistake. As long as the teacher obviously is qualified to teach there. They got this far with it, right? They hired him for some reason. Right. Well, he's been teaching this for 40 years, yeah. essentially. Right. Right. So, so exactly. So what is it that changed? What changed? Did he have a problem? Did he have a career issue? Did he have a personal issue? Did he need a semester off? Or none of that, and it just became the students. Mm-hmm. You, you grind it out. You're much better for it. You uh, fight it. You know? uh, Obi, I certainly agree with you. I, thank you very much for the call. Certainly agree. 800-848-9222. David in the Bronx, one of our champions from uh, the other side of Governor's Island last night. David, it was good to see you. Yeah, same here, Frank. Uh, good morning. morning. All right, so there's a couple of things I'd like to point out. First of all, this gentleman was not actually fired. His contract wasn't renewed. He was given a one-year contract as an adjunct. The other thing is, reading between the lines, I actually was reading an article about this while you were talking or listening to an article. This gentleman, from reading between the lines, was apparently not popular with his colleagues either. His teaching style seemed to be something that did not mix with the current situation at that college. And let's be honest, this isn't really about the students who complained this is about the college concern about their rankings, which is how they get right. in the first place and are able to charge what I consider to be the outrageous amounts of money that they're charging. My 17-year-old niece, who's an excellent student in math and the science, will likely be going to a school like NYU. But one of the reasons that she's you know, having a hard time deciding is because of the expense. You know, she can't get in for, as a result of a legacy admission, which some of these students probably did, which is why they don't like a tough class. I mean, who knows what the quality of these students are? But, you know, this is a, an issue that is going to cause a lot of problems. You know, we're talking about forgiving student debt and all this other stuff, because let's be honest, most of these students at NYU are probably on loans. They're not even being on their own on what their parents are making. So, you know, this guy, I, I feel bad for him, but I think a lot, some of this is his fault. You know, they said that he had a teaching style that was opaque. He was 
brusque or tough to deal with. So maybe it, it's a, 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 a what is that word? A pox on all our houses regarding this particular situation. Yeah, well, uh, thank you, David. I, I'll be honest. I don't feel bad for that. I, I don't feel that bad for him. I don't think um, I think he's going to be just fine. Right. I mean, he's uh, probably got enough money that he can retire. I'm sure he can get a job teaching somewhere else if he wants one as an adjunct. He could do some writing. I don't think this is a, a big deal at all for him. My concern is that this empowers the mob, the mob of students. And you have a situation where you're going to have students saying, all right, we don't like this professor. Uh, we, let's circulate a, a petition to get him, um, get him removed. But what's next? L- l- let's say we don't like this course. Let's, circle, let's circulate a petition to get this course removed. We don't like this guest speaker coming up at graduation. Let's circulate a petition for that. I, at some point, um, I don't think I'm all for democracy, but I don't think you should turn decisions about teachers and things of that nature over to the student body. Um, congressman, former Congressman Joe Walsh, who was also a talk show host. He also ran for president. Um, Not sure what authority he has on this subject, but whatever. What authority do I have to comment on this? He was on News Nation commenting on the Maitland Jones firing. Let's hear what he had to say. Universities and schools hate negative publicity. Until universities explain free speech to our students and, and until universities explain to our students that Classes are tough, and if you want a good grade, you need to work. What's going to happen is people are going to leave. So there you have it. Now we've heard from Joe Walsh. Now we have a much more well-rounded view of the entire subject. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Chick, kick, cat, cool, school. The great Bobby Rydell swinging, singing Swinging School. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. If you want to comment on anything we're talking about, that's 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. So, uh, last night, I saw... I saw most of yesterday's... Um, episode of the new Cuomo show on News Nation. And um, I wanted to watch it with an open mind and give it a, give it a fair evaluation. But, um, and so I did. I watched most of it. I was flipping between that and the um, Met game. And my wife and I were having dinner during it. So we were having some tacos during it. Um, my Look, it's the second episode of the show. So I'm not going to judge it too harshly. I wouldn't want to be judged too harshly by the second episode of this show, which you can go back and listen to, I think, by the way. But um, 
so here's my honest evaluation. I um I thought the guests were pretty interesting. There were there were two segments that I enjoyed. Um, he did uh, an interview with Stephen A. Smith, who's a sportscaster and who I know a little bit. He's filled in on this radio station from time to time. He does a podcast. He's uh, on ESPN. He does a lot of things. And it was a really wide-ranging interview, and it was an interesting interview, and they covered a lot of issues in sports, and especially what I like to do, the nexus between the worlds of sports and and politics. Really, I thought that was an interesting interview, but that was good. There was also part two of Chris Cuomo's interview with Bill Maher. Um, I thought that was really interesting, mostly because Bill Maher was interesting. But I thought Chris Cuomo did ask him some good questions. So I thought those two interview segments were good. They also did He also did a segment on uh, what they call frontline workers, highlighting nurses. And I could tell that Chris Cuomo doing this, it was really more about just him trying to ingratiate himself to the public. Now, again, I don't want to sound dismissive because I think everybody knows that nurses do a great job. I mean, it was basically his way of draping himself in mom apple pie in the flag. What's tomorrow? Is he going to do a segment about how great firefighters are? So that segment, I thought, was I get why he's doing it. I get he wants people to like him again. But um, that was kind of a waste, I thought. Okay. So those were the three guests that were on last night's edition of the show. Then at the beginning of this show, there's sort of a monologue segment. And then towards the end of the show, he takes calls. Okay. The monologue segment, um, I thought was very weak. I thought, uh, look, I I don't want to be insulting and I, we are inviting Chris Cuomo on the show and I'm going to be very respectful and I'm going to, Try and find a way to say this in a way that's not um, insulting to him or disrespectful. Chris Cuomo is not a deep thinker, okay? He reminds me a little bit of Hannity. You know, I I watch Hannity and there's no depth. There's no analysis. There's no substantive thinking. Uh, it's, It's all very superficial. And that's with Hannity. Now, Chris Cuomo makes Sean Hannity look like Charles Krauthammer. Mean in terms of intellectual depth and hep. it's not an intelligent presentation. You get the same kind of news just by hearing anyone read a headline. And uh, so I, I I found his whole opening segment where he's standing kind of um, kind of a waste, right? He also um, and look, television is a visual medium, and and look, I, I as I've said, I look like. A job of the hut just ate Dom DeLuise, so I'm no, not going to criticize the way anybody looks right now. But his wardrobe, I thought, was weird. It looked like he was wearing a suit a size too big. And the only thing I could think is when he used to do things like moderate Democratic presidential debates, I got the sense that he was intentionally wearing clothing that was one size too small to make him look, himself look more muscular. And I think... I'm probably not the only person that said that, and he. this was kind of re- of a reaction to that. The suit didn't look like it fit him. It looked like he was wearing, like a, a 12-year-old wearing his grandfather's suit. And, and again, unless I'm missing something. Then um, he's teasing the segment 
of calls that are upcoming. Now, I give him credit if he's really going to take calls. But I want to see him take calls from people like Stephen from, Steve from Manhattan and Jennifer from Boston, right? And, uh, and um, uh, Ralph in New Jersey, right? Um, he, he's teasing the caller segment. And I'm reminded in this moment, the, and we couldn't pull the audio, but um, I'm reminded in this moment why I've so detested him on television for so many years. And again, I have nothing against him personally. I saw him in an ice cream parlor one time, and he seems like a very considerate father. Uh, I, used, I talked to him a couple times when he co-hosted with Curtis and when he was a guest with Curtis. was n- a nice enough guy to me. I have nothing against the guy at all personally. But I was reminded why I've so detested him as a television personality. He goes on this whole, this whole big anti-social media rant about how, no, we want to hear from real people. We're not interested in keyboard warriors. So we want to find out what real people are saying. And we're going to go to the phones. And all I'm thinking is, why are you saying that people that have the ability to dial a telephone are suddenly their opinion is more meritorious than someone that's willing to comment on Facebook. There was no explanation of why that's the case, nothing like that. And then he takes his, his hand and holds it, holds it up to his face as if he's mimicking making a phone call as they're going to break. Like he has to act out that they're going to take calls. And he's, he's saying, he actually says at one point, all right, hi, Mom, you know, and I didn't find it funny. I didn't find it amusing. I just found it annoying. And that's my fundamental problem with Andrew with uh, Chris Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo I have a whole separate list of grievances with. But with Chris Cuomo, I find everything he does annoying. And it's very difficult if you're not likable. It's very difficult for me to buy into anything you're saying. And then he actually, as he's going to break and he's promoting the phone segment, he actually says something to the effect of, and I'm sorry we couldn't pull the audio. They're going to put it on uh, the News Nation website, I think, in a couple hours. But he actually goes so far as to say, get at it. What does that mean, get at it? It's just, it's the, it's the kind of thing that his college-age daughter probably typed on Instagram sometime and Chris Cuomo thinks this is what the cool kids say. Get at it. And I'm just, ugh. Ugh. So then they come back for the final call-in segment. And I'm thinking, I'm still holding out some hope here. I'm thinking maybe, because he did do, I, I want to give the guy credit. He did a great interview with Stephen A. Smith and a great interview, in my opinion, with Bill Maher. Maybe he'll take some calls from people that disagree with him. Uh, because... He offers the most simplistic political analysis in the world. I mean, it's just if you treat if you were to take a fifth grader and say, hey, John Q, fifth grader, you're now a political pundit. They would sound exactly like Chris Cuomo. So he take he goes to the caller segment and he goes to the woman, I guess, who's producing the show. And he has to I don't remember her name is Austin or Dustin or Dusta or something like that. And it's a pretty blonde woman. You could tell they wanted to show a woman on television because of his previous issues with women and his brother's issues with women. So they put a split screen of this woman up there who does nothing except tell him who's on the line. 
Yeah, we have Joe in Texas. Uh, or Brett in Texas. Will in Texas. Whatever his name was, the guy. And all I'm thinking is, why does she have to be on television saying that? Why can they not have a... T- I know he's reading from a teleprompter. I know he's got a teleprompter. Why don't they just put on the teleprompter, Will from Texas? Why do I have to watch Chris Cuomo on television saying, hey, Dusta, who's on the line? And she says, well, we got Will in Texas. And he says, oh, Will in Texas. It's just a waste of 45 seconds just to show her on that screen because she's a woman. And then um, the first call they take is kind of a nothing burger. Again, nice enough guy, the caller seemed as well. But he basically said, well, thanks for doing such a great job shining a light on nurses. I mean, please, please. What is tomorrow? How great the American flag is? And then take a call. Well, thank you for exposing how great the American flag is. I mean, it's just, it was, it was, it was taxing. It was one of those shows. It was not entirely terrible. That's the best thing I could say about it. But you actually feel, at least I did. I'm only speaking for myself. And if you have a different view, please call me, 800-848-9222. But I wanted to watch this show with an open mind. I watched this hour. Most of it anyway, because like I said, I was praying the Mets wouldn't. uh, I'm part of that 23 percent of the American public that was praying that the Mets would not botch yesterday's doubleheader. So. I actually felt less intelligent after watching this hour, and this is what kills me about Chris Cuomo. I always feel like he's talking down to me like I'm an idiot. And then um, I, I don't know if it was towards the end of the interview with Bill Maher or towards one of his. Uh, oh, no, no. I remember what it was. Um, it was towards the end of the show when he's doing the handoff to Dan Abrams that does the program after him. And he's going on and on right before that about how uh, we don't need uh, we need more than two parties. We don't need the two party system. We're not going to get any solutions from the two party system. I wish we had three or four parties. He said, I'm, I'm not against Democratic politics. I came from a background of one of the great Democrats. And all I'm thinking of, well, where has this guy been for his entire career in journalism? All of a sudden, because you lost your job on CNN which had a primarily Democratic audience, and now you're with a new news network that is billing itself as sort of nonpartisan and unbiased. All of a sudden, now you're against the two-party system? Well, I mean, I'm against the two-party system, but you know what I have? I have a lifetime of activism in that realm, a lifetime of campaign contributions to people that are running as independents and third-party candidates. What have you ever done, Chris Cuomo, to... Further, your newfound belief that the two-party system is no good. And what brought about this belief all of a sudden? Because I never heard this from you before, which leads me to think it's not genuine, that it's just kind of pandering to this is what the network wants. And then the last part of the show I actually did find really interesting, uh, which is the he does this handoff to Dan Abrams, and Dan Abrams hosts the show after him, and Dan Abrams, uh, you know, he he clearly is getting along with Chris Cuomo, or at least he's acting like he's getting along with him. And he comments on Chris Cuomo's interview with the nurse, with the nurse highlighting the nurses. And honestly, Dan Abrams' compliment to Chris Cuomo about the segment on nurses was so much more interesting than Chris Cuomo's entire segment about nurses. So I said, "Wow, oh, that's really insightful." 
So um, I enjoyed that handoff to Dan Abrams, and I enjoyed the banter between the two of them because it reminded me of what some local radio stations do. If you're listening on WABC in New York, I come on right after Dominic Carter. So I joined Dominic Carter in the last few minutes of his show, and it's kind of a sense of community. And years ago, all the radio shows used to be like that. And now um, they try to emulate this on television to some extent and on radio. It doesn't really – it comes across as a little artificial if they even do it at all. Like when when Tucker Carlson does his handoff to Sean Hannity for that 20 seconds, I I, I hate to put it this way. You can tell Tucker can't stand Sean Hannity. You can absolutely tell that it's paining Tucker – to lower himself to double-digit IQ to communicate with Sean Hannity. You could tell just by his body language, the way he speaks, the way he makes a face when Sean speaks. Um, You can tell these guys actually get along with one another. So that was nice. It kind of contributed to a convivial atmosphere on the show. So that is my... I'm not going to make an effort to watch this show again unless there's a guest on that I'm really interested in. But um, that's my objective overview of the new Cuomo show on News Nation. I liked uh, two of the interviews. I liked the topic selection in both the Chris Cuomo interview, in the uh, Stephen A. Smith interview and the um, Bill Maher interview. And I liked a lot of the questions that he asked. I liked the handoff to Dan Abrams. And that was pretty much it. I found everything that was very Chris Cuomo-centric pretty um, lacking in substance. And And I found... And I just find his whole TV persona pretty unlikable. So that was my review. I said I would watch it with an open mind. I did. Hey, one question I – you know who really impressed me in this in this uh, show last night was Bill Maher. And I've become more and more impressed with Bill Maher. He's become – look, he, he – I've come to view Bill Maher as a, a pretty independent voice on a lot of things. And I thought Chris Cuomo asked him a, a great question – and I loved what Bill Maher said in response. This is the one of the key highlights of the show for me uh, when it had to do with why Bill Maher is not getting any Emmy Awards. Why do you think you don't get the shine that they do? Well, and let me let me interject also I here tell the before, truth. We, uh, before we continue. So what he points out is he goes through a list of people that do what Bill Maher does. He mentions John Oliver. He mentions Trevor Noah, a bunch of other people. And he says, you do far better ratings than any of them. And that's true. But he says, as you hear there, why do you not get the acclaim, the uh, the Emmy nominations, the Emmy wins that they do? Why do you think you don't get the shine that they do? I tell the truth. I don't perform for just one half of the country and say the things that will make them applaud. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that, and there's very talented people uh, you're talking about and do fine shows, but I just, this has always been my bond with the audience, which is much more important to me than an award, um, is that uh, I will call it as I see it. And what's different, I mean, I have been nominated, uh, I think, 40 times. Yes. Never won, which is for the same reason. In recent years, yes, not even a nomination because, of course, the nominating body out here is very woke and wokeness become a big thing. And woke, I say, meaning woke with an eye roll kind of woke. I mean, there is a kind of woke that's valid when it started. It became ridiculous. So many things about the left now uh, contain some level of ridiculousness. And I not only call that out, I love calling it out. 
it, first of all, it's, it's the thing that the liberals should be doing more than anything else, is criticizing their own side for what's losing them elections. But besides that, I'm a comedian. I go where it's funny. And, the, you know, years ago they used to say, you know, why aren't there any, um, you know, funny right-wing comedians? And I would tell them, because the left doesn't do anything as ridiculous as the right. It was easy to make fun of Sarah Palin, and still is. And I still do, by the way. Most of what I make fun of is still on the right. But, you know, now we have equivalents of insanity like that. I thought that was such an interesting answer. And there are a lot, there's a lot of what he said there that I feel like applies to this show. In terms of, you know, we're doing great in the ratings, thank goodness. But there's this whole chorus of people that listen to radio or consume television that want you to be just a cheerleader for one side or another. I was on Sid Rosenberg's radio show last Friday, and somebody was posting about in the Facebook group, and someone said, uh, well, I didn't like that he, uh, what he said about Lee Zeldin. And all I'm thinking is, what is the matter with you? I mean, I'm, I'm on the show to give my opinion, right? I, I would never in, in a million years grade someone's appearance based on what their opinion was about someone's likelihood of winning an election. But everyone is so used to seeing the world in partisan eyes. So I gave uh, Chris Cuomo credit for an interesting question, but I thought Bill Maher really hit it out of the park with that answer. I thought he was absolutely right. We'll take your calls in uh, just a moment on uh, anything you feel like commenting about that we've covered. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Today is today because so is something. Today is World Teachers Day, National Do Something Nice Day, National Walk to School Day, National Apple Betty Day, and you know what? It's also it's National Coffee with a Cop Day, and finally National Pumpkin Seed Day. So um, it is interesting. You know what I did in light of two of those holidays. I tried the coffee that we have here because now we're going into fall and everything. We're in fall. We're going into Halloween and Thanksgiving and the like. They have the pumpkin spice flavored coffee. And I think, I know people wait for this all year round at Starbucks. I said, why don't I try this? Let me see what the fuss is about. So I put one of these K-cups in uh, the machine, the Keurig machine, pumpkin spice coffee. I have to tell you, I'd love to tell you it was overrated. It was terrific. It was absolutely uh, terrific. I can see why people make such a big deal all about um, all about this pumpkin spice everything. 
now. I can absolutely see. Happy birthday as well to actor Daniel Baldwin, probably the least known uh, Baldwin brother, and to uh, Academy Award winning actress Kate Winslet, who's terrific. I think she's not only a great actress, but a, a beautiful woman. Love, love Kate Winslet. And today, believe it or not, would have been the birthday of Chester A. Arthur, our 21st president. Chester A. Arthur, obviously, um, maybe not obvious to some of you, he became president when um, he was vice president and President Garfield had had died. He'd been shot by Charles Gateau and died. And Chester A. Arthur was the vice president, was elected that year, well, the previous year, 1880. Do you know what elective office Chester A. Arthur had prior to being vice president? None. None. The guy was never elected to anything before he was um, before he was vice president. And it's interesting. Chester A. Arthur was absolutely a machine politician. He had been chairman of the New York State Republican Party. He was the collector of the Port of New York, which in those days was a big deal, a very lucrative position. He um, was very tied in to Republican politics in New York, and he was from a different faction of the GOP than James Garfield was. And Garfield was from the faction of the party known as the half-breeds. That's what they called themselves, the half-breeds. And Chester A. Arthur was with the Roscoe Conkling faction of the Republican Party. He was the senator from New York. He was sort of uh, Chester A. Arthur's political guru, his patron. That was the faction of the Republican Party that... uh, Ulysses S. Grant was affiliated with because Grant almost got a third term in 1880 and they had a brokered convention. Garfield won as a dark horse candidate. But when they nominated Garfield, a member of the half-breed faction as the nominee, they said, well, look, you got to pick a stalwart in the name of party unity. You got to pick a stalwart as your vice president. So they pick, they forced Garfield, who had no say in this, they forced Garfield to take Chester A. Arthur, a guy that nobody had a high opinion of. Nobody. A guy that was thought of as a nice guy, a good guy to have a drink with, a good guy to go out partying with, and a good guy that would do what he was told. Not a friend of Garfield, was not picked by Garfield, was picked by the stalwart faction of the GOP. So then all of a sudden, Charles Gateau shoots James Garfield, and it takes Garfield some time to die from this bullet wound during this whole time. Almost the whole world blames Garfield, blames Chester A. Arthur because Charles Gateau wanted to be minister to Great Britain or minister to France or minister to some foreign country. He wanted a high-profile government position, and Garfield wouldn't give it to him. Gateau was convinced that Chester A. Arthur would give him something. And so a lot of people blame Chester A. Arthur, who had nothing to do with this. So... Lo and behold, Garfield's whole agenda was about reform, civil service reform, reform of the spoils system, all that stuff. And Chester A. Arthur, when he became president, he was inspired by a woman who I think was a paraplegic or had some sort of disability, and he became pen pals with this woman. And she basically said to him in uh, in a letter, she said, you know, use this as an opportunity to prove to everybody that you can be the man that you that they say you can't be. And he did. And he followed through 
on every aspect of uh, James Garfield's agenda. And he got it done. He got it done. Not surprisingly, he was not renominated by the GOP for a second term, and he died about a year after. He had a very unhappy presidency and a very short, unhappy post-presidency. 800-848-9222. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, hello, you think? Uh, just might have also been a, a hangman. One of those guys, Grover Rahim, was, was a hangman that actually hung people. Might have been a sheriff at one point of State New York or something. But anyway, you're running a great show there. Uh, you know, when you've got a full time, you have so many topics that you've got to address, and you can't please everybody. Nobody can ever agree with everybody. That's why we got different flavors of ice cream. Um, I'm not crazy about your stand on Ukraine, but guess what? Most nights, you're running a great show. Very interesting. So what I'd like to say is uh, with Chris, he's like vacuous. He's like Don Lemon. You know what I mean? Uh, it's all about uh, lifting weights, getting something, and nothing serious. You know what I mean? There's no gravitas uh, to that show, yes, you personally. Al, yeah. thank you. Uh, thank you. Yeah, well, you know, look, I felt I wanted to watch it at least with an open mind. Uh, I also watched uh, the first episode of Chris Wallace's new talk show. I thought that was pretty interesting. Until then, your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank moreno a lot to get to this hour including hopefully we'll give away some money but uh oh uh, i do want to bring to your attention um you know there was an interesting story and maybe we'll talk about it later if uh if time permits there was an interesting story about uh kim kardashian right and how she is being because i only mention this because she was such a hot item on our uh, our show yesterday with a whole bunch of people saying they want her to be the the president and she was um you know fined for her role in being a spokesperson for a crypto currency company and it's very complicated it's a weird it's a weird dynamic uh if the time permits we'll get into it a little bit later but the thing that was amazing to me is Do you know what she was paid for this Instagram post that she did endorsing this crypto security? $250,000. $250,000 for one Instagram post. Now, I'm reading this story and thinking, wouldn't it be great if I could be paid $250,000 for um, one Instagram post? And I feel like a lot of you would rather have me paid by sponsors for an Instagram post and Kim Kardashian. I feel like I would use that money better. I mean, I would buy better meals for the people here instead of just pizza. I'd buy you drinks whenever I saw you out. And uh, I think, you know, I'm so out there, I'm so visible, that your chances of running into me and having me buy you a drink are, are pretty good. So I would appreciate it if everybody listening would follow me on Instagram at Morano Vision, that's M-O-R-A-N-O Vision, 
so that uh, I can one day get to the point where I can charge $250,000 per Instagram post, right? Uh, That's M-O-R-A-N-O vision. All right. On to more serious matters. There are three stories which I think highlight serious problems with the criminal justice system in this country. And you know me. I'm very interested in the criminal justice system. And when I use the term criminal justice reform, I know this is a crazy concept. I don't mean letting everybody out of prison. No. I generally mean fixing the things that are wrong with the criminal justice system. That's my kind of reform. And that usually involves putting people in prison that should be there and getting people out of prison that shouldn't be there. Now, during Charles McCrory's murder trial nearly 40 years ago, a forensic expert told jurors that the defendant's teeth were a match for a bite mark on the victim's arm. Understand what I'm saying. Charles McCrory is on trial for murder, and this expert gets up there and says, yeah, Charles McCrory, those are his teeth marks, just like John Voight and the pencil. Those are his teeth marks on the victim's arm. He probably bit him, and the jury said, well, if he bit him, he probably did it, and they convicted him. He's been in prison for the last 40 years. Well, now, that expert has since changed his mind saying he no longer believes in the mostly discredited science of forensic bite mark analysis. Almost everybody has abandoned this. There are very few people that think it's still possible to determine who bit you if you have a bite mark on you. I wish I would have known this when I was in the seventh grade. I I was suspended from seventh grade for three days for biting a classmate. Had I known they weren't going to be able to catch me and analyze the bite marks, I would have pled not guilty. But anyway, despite that, despite the fact that this expert told everybody that he doesn't believe this anymore, McCrory remains in prison after a judge declined to throw out his conviction and his effort to join a long list of of bite mark exonerees goes to the Alabama Court of Appeals. So now the Alabama Court of Appeals is going to review this, but bite mark analysis is one of many forensic techniques that has fallen into the realm of junk science in recent years. So um, if anybody ever asks you the question, could a bite mark catch a killer? Answer, no, no. There's a wonderful series of documentaries about the uh, the West Memphis Three. Oh, what is the? Let me look it up because it's worth seeing if you haven't seen them. There's three of them. They're they're all very good. And just like with Serial, how they got the fella Adnan Syed uh, out of prison. These these documentary uh, uh, these um, documentaries did a good job. Uh, Paradise Lost. That's what it's called. The first one was from '96. The second one was from 2000. Third one is from a few years after this. Paradise Lost. Great, great series of documentaries. And those documentaries really did a great job getting those fellas out of prison. But if you watch the first and the second one, these West Memphis uh, Three were sent to prison in part for murdering a child, in part on this science of bite marks. 
because people believe that you could do it. You can't. You can't. This guy, Charles McCrory, should be let out of prison, or at the very least, he should get a new trial. And I am hoping that the Alabama Court of Appeals gives him one. Uh, And everybody that's in prison solely based on bite mark evidence, I'd love to see some new trials for all of them as well. That's my two cents on that. Now, here's another situation, which is equally outrageous. An Iowa jury has awarded $12 million in damages to a man who was wrongly imprisoned for sexual abuse. Listen to this. A former guidance counselor served six years of a 25-year sentence, as Reason Magazine terms it, thanks to a public defender's incompetence. And the jury in Iowa agreed. They gave this poor guy $12 million. A former elementary school guidance counselor served six years of a 25-year prison sentence after a student accused him of molestation. Donald Lyle Clark's 2010 conviction was overturned in 2016 after he persuaded a judge that his lawyer, who has died, had blatantly failed to do his job properly and that new evidence cast doubt on his accuser's truthfulness. And this case really vividly illustrates the perils of relying on the diligence of overtaxed public defenders, especially in rebutting sexual abuse allegations supported by nothing more than the claims of the alleged victim. No evidence. It also suggests that the emotions that are triggered by these charges can make it difficult for a defendant to get a fair trial, even with competent representation. So um, the case against Clark suggests how shaky it was. During the 2003 school year, Clark's accuser, who was then a fifth grader, had been diagnosed with attention deficit disorder and was having some motivation problems. He met with Clark, the guidance counselor, once a week for about 20 minutes. The boy, only identified as CB in court documents, he became angry and withdrawn after his fifth grade year, and he began drinking and using drugs in seventh grade. As a teenager, he engaged in self-harming behavior and suicide. When he was 16, his parents sent him to a school for troubled youth. During his stay at the school, this young man revealed during a group session that he had been sexually abused, but he did not identify an attacker. In an email to his parents, he likewise did not say who molested him, although he said it was not a priest at church as his parents suspected. This boy, this young man, said that he had been seeing and hearing things which he thought could be symptoms of schizophrenia, but his parents attributed to spirits. He also mentioned, this is the boy himself, that he was a habitual liar. So the boy later told social workers that Clark, this teacher, had molested him in two incidents. He basically touched him underneath his clothing. There were no witnesses, no physical evidence. So the trial came down to this boy's word against this guidance counselor's word. Yet the public defender chose not to present any character witnesses. Nor did he ever visit Clark's office where he could have taken pictures showing that anything happening inside would have been visible to people walking by in a very heavily trafficked hallway through a window in the door. 
the lawyer also did not inform Clark about depositions of witnesses who could have testified about the layout of the school, the location of the offices, the line of sight from the corridor. After the jury convicted Clark of second-degree sexual assault, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. Um, He was also ordered to pay $11,000 in court fees, $67,000 in restitution. And he spent years trying to appeal this case before he finally made it out of prison. Well, now they had to fork over $12 million to him. And it really is just such a shame that the public defender system in this country is so overtaxed. So um, they also concluded that uh, the failure of the lawyer to inform Clark about the depositions or to obtain and uh, document Clark's consent to waiver of his presence at the depositions fell below an objective standard of reasonableness. You know what? Money is fine. Money is great. But money is a poor substitute for time. Time is really the only non-replenishable resource. It's the only thing you really can't get back. And the fact that this guy lost six years of his life in prison because his public defender was overtaxed, I think that has got to be the greatest tragedy in the criminal justice system today. And I think it's probably more common than you realize. I think there's a lot of people listening to me in prison right now that know what I'm talking about. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. And finally, on the criminal justice front, 800-848-9222. This is something. Federal drug agents and prosecutors in Colorado held a news conference in July to tout their work taking fentanyl off the streets amidst a string of highly publicized overdose deaths. Um, And they were real proud of themselves over this. Brian Besser, the special agent in charge of the Drug Enforcement Administration's Denver Field Division, said, quote, I wanted to give you guys something different today, not just a gloom and doom story. I wanted you to see that behind the scenes there is aggressive and tenacious police work being done and prosecution being done to save lives and to bring people to justice. Now, doesn't that sound great? Among the cases that uh, Besser highlighted was the seizure of 114 pounds of pure fentanyl in June. And if you listen to John Katzmatidis' show or read a paper, you know how dangerous this fentanyl is. It's very, very much more powerful than, than heroin, and it's killing a lot of people. It's hurting a lot of people. And it's cheaper than heroin, so people are, are buying it, and uh, it's very addictive. So he said that this fentanyl was enough to kill more than 25 million people. That was not a mispronunciation or a misspeaking on my part. He said that this 114 pounds of pure fentanyl was more than enough to kill 25 million people. 25 million. He described this as the largest fentanyl bust on a U.S. highway in history. Besser said, quote, we are not asleep at the wheel. Well, this is a curious phrase for him to use, given what had just happened after that record fentanyl seizure. 
NBC News reporting, great reporting by them, a stunning blunder that went unmentioned during this news conference on July 6th. (laughs) I don't mean to laugh, but you laugh to keep from crying. The DEA lost track of the man who was transporting this massive amount of fentanyl. David Maldonado, 27 years old. The guy was transporting 114 pounds of fentanyl. They lost track of him. He had agreed to cooperate with federal agents and help them arrest the drug traffickers in South Bend, Indiana, where he said the fentanyl was headed. But on the way to do the deal, Maldonado managed to lose the DEA agents and remove the tracker that they had placed in his car. Now, he's considered a fugitive, but my question for the DEA is, if you're making such a big deal about how this is the largest fentanyl bust in history, on a highway anyway, how this fentanyl could kill 25 million people, you'd think you'd keep a pretty close eye on the person that was transporting this, especially if he's agreed to cooperate, especially if he's so instrumental to a case like this. And yet they lost him. If they can't keep track of this guy, that doesn't exactly inspire confidence in the DEA's ability to do anything. I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm being too harsh here, but this is a tremendous embarrassment. And this guy, Mr. Besser, does a whole big press conference asking for a pat on the back? I don't know about you, but this is ridiculous. 800-848-9222. Frank Figliuzzi, who is a national security analyst for Dateline on NBC News, talked about the DEA losing this drug mule. We've got a record amount of fentanyl involved here. In fact, enough fentanyl to kill everyone in the state of Colorado. The individual who was delivering that amount of fentanyl is now in the wind. Clearly, there's been a failure of operational planning and execution. You think? 800-848-9222. Jim is in New Jersey. Hello, Jim. Hey, Frank. Good evening. Can you hear me? Perfectly, Jim. Right? Yes. Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Uh, I, you were talking about uh, the, the it's a public defender. I... Uh, I was assaulted in New York, and I had my neck broken. Oh, I'm sorry. And uh, and it was on video. Uh, interesting enough, my my lawyer, starting with my lawyer, never sat down to me and asked what went on. Never. Uh, we went to three days of deposition, and uh, you're more experienced than I am. My only thing about trials is seeing it on TV. When we walked in for three days of deposition, I sat in the front. She sat 15 feet behind me in the back. Never uttered a word during the whole thing. With hindsight, I said, "I was, you know, the, the fresh meat was in the room, and it was me. She had deserted me. Then when I got to the DA's office, uh, maybe you know this. If you're a victim of a crime, you're supposed to be informed if they decide to plead the case out. They never informed me. I went in thinking I was going into a trial, and it was a plea bargain situation. And then at, when it was all settled, my assailant, who broke my neck on video, uh, he never went to jail. Uh, he was given a DAT to show up two days after the crime. 
And then, uh, you know, my introduction to the district attorney's office in New York City, the, uh, there was a young DA, assistant DA working with me, and he had a mentor. She introduced herself to me by saying, uh, I, I don't want to get this bleep deep off the air. She looked at me, she looked over her shoulder at me and said, we don't care if you're MF racist. And uh, she walked away, and uh, it was a pleasant thing. And then when the whole case got settled, uh, unfortunately, the young DA handling my case couldn't find my mailing address and couldn't send me the, uh, you know, the, the, the final decision and the, uh, what do you call it, the order of protection. The, the the system works only when it wants to work, Frank. Yeah, well, look, Jim, I'm sorry that you went through that, especially the physical pain aspect of that. And I'm sorry that uh, it sounds like the uh, prosecutors in this case were so, um, I don't know, so out to lunch and not making your assault a priority for them. And unfortunately, I think this is the kind of thing, I, I think your last comment is right on the money. The system works only when it wants to work. Sometimes even when the system does want to work, it doesn't work. So I, I think that's all very problematic, honestly. 800-848-9222. Um, e. Frank is in Astoria. Hello, E. Frank. Yes, uh, good morning, Frank. Uh, you know, I just uh, heard what you said about this uh, fentanyl trafficker that was let go by the DEA. You know, I've had a certain experience with the DEA and uh, with narcotic issues in my community, and i got to tell you, the story has changed dramatically over the years, in the last 30 years. I was involved with this situation uh, where, um, you know, this agent that I worked with at one time, he uh, actually waited to see what would happen, and he he found the drugs in uh, uh, an individual's doing that, and there's thousands of drug traffickers in this country, Frank. You know, you know that very well. The problem I I have with what you said is that, you know, when you say that this individual is let go, uh, you know, you're actually not inspiring confidence. That means that you know, if you're in a housing development or you have problems in in, in a building where you live and they're doing drugs in the hallways, you you you're telling to say you're saying, Frank, that maybe the police undercover narcotics officers are not doing their job completely and the DEA is actually allowing this to happen, thus creating... Yeah, well, E. Frank, yeah, I think think this is a pretty damning case of incompetence on the part of the DEA. And I'm not the only one. Uh, Other law enforcement officials have said the same thing. Criminal justice professors have said the same thing. Other journalists have said the same thing. This is nuts. This is nuts. This is a textbook case of five-star incompetence. Does it mean that the DEA is always incompetent? No. But um, this is a tremendous embarrassment. Tremendous. All right. uh, We're going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000 in a moment. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Be the seventh caller to that number. 800-848-9222. And if you are... You'll get an opportunity to play the $1,000 minute. What does that mean? It means you'll answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you can pull that off, if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, then you will be $1,000 richer. Be the seventh caller now. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
This is Macy Gray. Love this song. This is terrific. Everything she does is great. Um, love this. Wow. If you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing, uh, join our Facebook group. Um, you can just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, you can see what kind of bumper music we play on a regular basis, including... This Macy Gray tune. All right, it's time for us to try and give someone the opportunity to win $1,000. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. All right, thank you, Chris Libertini. Let us say hello to Shane in Manhattan. Hello, Shane. Shane? Shane, come back. Hello? All right, we have no Shane. Uh, If somebody else wants to call in, whoever the next caller is, call in at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. If it's Shane or someone else, we'll give you an opportunity to win the money. Hey, uh, Kenneth, what was Shane's story? Usually people are so excited. They don't usually drop off like that. Yeah, he was there. I don't know what the guy's doing. Where do you go in, like, a minute? Well, I'll tell you. Literally, like, right right before we come back. I'm going to give you my theory on what happened here. His name's not Shane. His name is Dane or Sean or Lane or Blaine or Kane or something. Steve from Manhattan. Steve, right. Oh, no, it was Shane. It was Shane. Uh, and I um, I go to that caller. And I say, hey, Shane. And he's thinking, wait, wait a minute. I'm not Shane. I'm Joe. And oh, I must not be the person that won. And I might not, not have the opportunity to compete. And he hung up. That's what happened here. That's how I'm reading that one. So, Frank, what do you think? I'm Avery? (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Oh, boy. Avery. All right. Uh, you find me on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And uh, if you ever want to email me or just be added to my email list, you can do so at uh, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll, we're going to go into an interesting column I read by somebody that used to sit in this chair yesterday and i'm going to share it with you even though i don't know how much it's going to resonate with you but i do think it's going to uh i think it's an interesting story and it's an interesting story about where we are with the radio business these days so i think you're going to be interested all right 
Let us say hello now to Jeff on Long Island. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Frank. How's it going? It's going well, Jeff. It's going well. Uh, you familiar with this contest? Yes, I was. I played a long time ago, and I was the guy that missed the question about how many letters are in the alphabet. Oh, boy. Okay, good. You're, we're in store for an interesting uh, contest time. then. All right, so it's your opportunity to um, to get, to make things right now. Now, do you know how many letters are in the alphabet? Yes, 26. Okay. All right. No, that's not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not asking. Don't use all your good answers yet. All right, Jeff, since you've played before and you know the rules, we'll get started, okay? Let's go. What month does Thanksgiving take place? November. What 1980s film deals with an alien befriending a child and phoning home? E.T. What Tesla CEO has again agreed to buy Twitter? Musk. In Greek mythology, who is the king of the gods? Zeus. What Major League Baseball team plays in Washington, D.C.? The Washington... Yeah, you got me. The Washington Senators. Uh, Close. Used to be them. It is now the Washington Nationals. The Nationals. Uh, They lost a doubleheader to the Mets yesterday. Jeff, uh, good effort, though. No alphabet issues this time. Putting you on hold. Give Jeff uh, a consolation prize if we're eligible to give him something uh, again because uh, Jeff's a nice guy. And uh, made it up to question five. Okay? Washington Nationals. Washington Nationals. They're playing the Mets again today. Mets beat them both games. Of a doubleheader, thankfully. All right. I came across a couple of interesting articles. This is a New York Times article from May of 1982. 40 years ago. 40 years ago. Headline. Radio's latest boom. Late night talk shows. Okay. Now, you can imagine this captures my interest by Kevin Goodman. Every night, I'm not going to read you the whole thing, but I'm going to read you a good chunk of it. Every night, as millions of Americans are counting sheep, radio executives are busy counting newly found listeners and advertising dollars. AM radio stations have discovered that there is a wide awake, not to mention highly responsive audience for late night call-in talk shows. At the same time, they have realized that there are profits to be made in a time period that until recently had not been all that appealing to advertisers. Tomorrow, the ABC radio network will launch Talk Radio, a service available to AM stations nationwide via satellite, providing six hours of phoned-in conversation at night, beginning at 1 a.m. Eastern locally, because this was back when the New York Times was still had some local coverage. It was kind of a local paper. Locally, the shows will be carried on WABC. Talk radio, as well as other network overnight programming, is following the lead of Larry King, whose six-hour call-in program has been broadcast nationally for the past four years. His show 
which nightly attracts about 4 million night owls, consists of three hours of interviews with celebrities, authors, and politicians who also take calls from Mr. King's listeners. But the most popular feature audience surveys have shown is the three-hour portion of the show, Open Lines, during which listeners call Mr. King and discuss just about anything they wish. The mutual broadcasting system broadcasts Mr. King's show live on weekdays with taped highlights from earlier interviews on weekends. It's heard locally uh, at midnight on WOR. With a sizable audience to tempt advertisers with AM radio to survive the growing popularity of the FM band, with its capability of broadcasting music with a clearer signal and in stereo, has had to look for alternative programming. The trend in most major cities is for music to be on the FM band and for talk, news, sports, and information shows to be on AM stations. And keep in mind, this is 1982. Indeed, starting at midnight tonight, the only AM station in New York City that will still be programming popular music will be WNBC. There are few all-talk FM stations nationwide. Philadelphia's WWDB being an exception. Music on AM is doomed, says Rick Sklar, vice president in charge of programming at the ABC radio networks. Quote, radio always had to adapt itself to changes. When television came in, radio took a back seat until it realized its entertainment and information potential. Quote, now AM has to evaluate itself again and see how it can survive without music. Talk and information is the obvious solution, says Mr. Sklar, who started WABC's highly successful Top 40 format in 1962 with such on-air personalities as Scott Muni, Cousin Brucey, and Dan Ingram. ABC's talk radio programs, which will originate from Los Angeles, feature three hours with Ira Fistel. I'm not sure if it's Ira Fistel or Ira Fistel. With Ira Fistel, who is self-described as having a photographic memory and who will be the host of an Anything is Up for Discussion call-in show and three hours with Ray Bream, who will interview individuals currently in the news and will take calls from listeners. So that's from 1982. And I thought that was so interesting to see how uh, overnight radio was kind of exploding on the AM dial 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, here we are today. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Right now, the only reason I know who Ray Bream is. The only reason I know who Ray Bream is, is because of Doug McIntyre. Doug McIntyre used to have a nationally syndicated overnight radio program. It was called Red Eye Radio, but it's not the Red Eye Radio that's out there now. This was a great radio show. In fact, um, on my best day, I don't know that I'm as good as Doug McIntyre on his worst day. Doug was phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And, uh, you know, I was a huge fan of Doug when he was on the radio. And whenever Doug is in New York, and again, I wouldn't say Doug's a friend of mine. I think I've met him twice in my life, but we, you know, we stay in touch a little bit. And I've told Doug repeatedly, because I'm such a fan of his, even though he's kind of retired from radio now, I've said to Doug, whenever you're in New York, you've got to come on the radio with me and come in studio. So he came in studio with me once for about two hours. And we do a very different show from the one that Doug did. Doug didn't have guests or anything like that. But Doug 
talked about what made overnight radio so interesting. And Doug told me when he was in studio with me about a year or so ago, he said that he first caught the radio bug, not as a listener, but as a commentator, when he was in studio on KABC with Ray Bream, the very same person who used to be carried on WABC in New York, one of the stations that I'm broadcasting on now. This is Doug McIntyre talking about what made and makes overnight radio so unique. You talked a little bit about how a guest appearance that you did on the overnight show on KABC led to your career in radio. For the uninitiated, for people that didn't hear that conversation, briefly explain how you made that transition from writer to radio talk show host. Well, uh, like you, I was a radio junkie as a kid. My my mother and father out on the island, they couldn't understand, why is that kid going through 9-volt batteries? Because I was always slipping a transistor radio under the pillow. But my radio god was Gene Shepard on WOR, if you're old enough. And those of you who aren't, you've seen the movie Christmas Story. Well, Gene wrote the movie, and that's his voice narrating it. And those uh, that movie started all as stories that he ad-libbed uh, on the air uh, back in the day. And uh, so radio was an early passion, and, but, you know, things uh, drifted on. You go through uh, puberty and you have other interests and you get distracted by things. And I fell into the television business for a long time. But uh, and along that uh, path, I, I, I became a nut about the Wright brothers. I wanted to write a movie about the Wright brothers, and I did all kinds of research about the Wright brothers to the point where all my friends would avoid if if they saw a, a plane in the <laughs> sky, they they'd run from if I was in the neighborhood because I started blabbing about the Wright brothers, and I, I ended up writing a piece that was on American History Illustrated on the cover, and the overnight guy at uh, KBC in Los Angeles at the time, Ray Bream, who actually was part of ABC syndication, used to be on WABC way back in the early 70s. So that's the only reason I know who Ray Bream is. I never heard Ray Bream when he was on this station. Never heard. And I never heard the other person that was mentioned in that New York Times article, Ira Fistel, until um, yesterday. Never heard them. And some of you may remember both of them from when they were on WABC in New York. Uh, This is a little bit of Ira Fistel about 20 years ago. I think he was still on KABC at the time. And next Sunday night, December 30th, my guest will be Professor Roman Chemerinsky of University of Southern California Law School. And we're going to talk on uh, that program a week from tonight about civil liberties law and the challenges posed by the anti-terrorism law. effort. So uh, I think that'll be a great show. So I had never thought about Ira Fistel. I had no inkling that Ira Fistel did anything in radio. Didn't give him any thought Um, until yesterday. What happened yesterday? Well, Doug McIntyre, who I remain a fan of, he writes a syndicated newspaper column, primarily carried in California, but it's published online and elsewhere. And I never miss it. This is the column that Doug wrote yesterday. I'm going to read it verbatim. And I wish I was as good of a um, radio um, marksman with my words as, uh, as Doug McIntyre was. But this is what he said. Ira Fistel has died. He was 81. 
For three decades, Fistel was a nightly companion to thousands of Southern Californians as he hosted his radio show from 9 p.m. to midnight on Talk Radio 790 KABC. Fistel's show was a hodgepodge of often esoteric topics ranging from trains, Mark Twain, history, baseball, politics, and pretty much anything else you can think of, although not so much pop culture. I'm not sure Ira knew who Britney Spears was. And that's the rub. A man who entertained a vast audience for decades was ultimately excommunicated from broadcasting for straying too far outside the zeitgeist. We are worse off for it. I first heard Ira in New York when he was one of the early syndicated talk shows on the ABC radio network. When I moved to Los Angeles 30-plus years ago, I became a regular listener of his local show and eventually his colleague at KABC. His astonishing memory never ceased to amaze me. One night, while guest co-hosting with Fistel, a caller asked how many perfect games had been thrown in Major League Baseball. Ira not only rattled off every one of the 23 perfect games, he also knew who threw them, who they were against, And the final score of each game. If I hadn't seen him do it, I would have sworn he had to have a computer screen in front of him. But Ira Fistel never had a computer in front of him, ever. Fistel stubbornly stubbornly clung to the analog world he was born into, railing against the computer age, a radio Don Quixote, tilting at the technology windmill until the demands of email and social media overwhelmed his career. Ira Fistel's radio program was a nighttime pleasure, a civil, respectful conversation with Southern California, where the president was always Mr. Reagan or Mr. Bush or Mr. Clinton, a place where the eccentricities of the listeners and the host were not only tolerated, they were embraced. His oddballness was a big part of his appeal. Sadly, Nobody in radio would hire Ira Fistel today or anyone like him, even if you could find someone as interested and knowledgeable in so many aspects of humanity. The entertainment industry is infamous for chasing the last hit. For radio, that hit was 35 years ago when Rush Limbaugh arrived in New York from Sacramento. The talk industry moved to the right and stayed there, becoming a monolith of nearly nonstop political chatter with nearly identical opinions being spouted by nearly identical hosts. AM Talk Radio in particular became a 24-7, 365 political soapbox where program hosts rarely strayed from the left-right battlefield. Ira Fistel talked politics, too, but from a liberal perspective, sometimes socialist perspective, although he would never admit it. In fairness to radio program directors and other media gods who make the hiring decisions... The market is much more competitive today than it was in Ira's time, with literally a million alternatives fighting for the audience's attention. Super serving the base is not an ideological decision, rather a pragmatic business imperative. At least that's what, quote, research tells them. A man as broad-based as Fistel simply didn't fit the format of talk radio any more than Carrie Underwood fits the playlist at Power 106. Sadly... Fistel's reputation was marred by one horrific night, a car accident that claimed the life of a 15-year-old girl. This is also part of who he was. Ira did not cause the accident. The car hit his car, but he fled the scene in a panic, and that stain remains. It's part of his biography. Still, that awful night in an otherwise honorable life does not negate his six children, the books he wrote, the kids he taught, his gift as a raconteur, his enthusiasm for life, for America, and his commitment to polite and articulate expression of ideas and his lifelong interest in people. Where can I find that show today? 
uh, written by Doug McIntyre. Now, I thought that was brilliant. And the headline of that piece is Ira Fistel, Radio's Brilliant Oddball. I'm going to link to it if you want to read it on my uh, Facebook page, facebook.com slash Fan. I was, after reading that, I was glad that I read it because I had no idea who Ira Fistel was. And um, this is somebody that I think I would have been a fan of. Two, I was also a little sorry that I had no idea who he was because I would have listened to him uh, had I known that he was on the air here and elsewhere. And uh, three, I really was struck by the tone that Doug articulated there about how radio has changed over the years. One of my great frustrations with the world of radio, not this station, because we're doing some creative things and some interesting things and some things nobody else is doing, but a lot of other radio stations around the country, they're all doing the same sort of formulaic cookie-cutter format. And um, it was nice to read Doug do an homage to someone that did things a little bit differently and a little more out of the box. And I couldn't resist the, I don't know what you would call it. Is it meta? I couldn't resist the delicious irony of the current overnight host at WABC reading something written by the former overnight host at WABC about about the previous overnight host at WABC. To me, there's something cyclical about that. Uh, 40 years from now, maybe whoever's sitting in this chair will um, play this portion of the audio when, I don't know, when something happens to Doug McIntyre or me or something along those lines. All right, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame in just a bit. Uh, That's 800-848-9222. A lot of other stuff that I didn't get to get to that we will do uh, tomorrow. And by the way, you know who got a haircut yesterday? I don't know. I know a lot of you are guessing Kenneth, but no, this time it was my turn. My The modeling agency I'm trying to work with demanded that I get a haircut in order to be considered for a uh, one of those Kenneth style modeling deals. So yeah, got a, head, uh, got a haircut yesterday. Woke You're up. Funny, aren't you? Woke up. At 8.30 in the morning, set my alarm and promptly turned it right off. And I hit the snooze. Woke up again at 8.40, turned it off again. <laughs> and Because, you know, when you've been sleeping an hour and a half or so, it's very difficult to uh, just pop right up. And then, fortunately, my wife came in and, and woke me up because she was most interested in me getting a haircut. So uh, so I got one, ran to the bank, got some cash, paid my barber, and got scalped. So uh, now I think I should be good for a month or so. 15 Seconds of Fame is uh, coming up in just a moment. If you want to be heard for 15 seconds, you can. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The sun goes down, you 
is indeed the other side of midnight. Um, if you want to be heard for 15 seconds, you can do so at 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. We will end this program, the special Yom Kippur edition of The Other Side of Midnight, the way we end every edition of The Other Side of Midnight, by giving you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of... Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Mike in Montclair. Good morning, Frank. In regard to your seventh grade biting incident and subsequent suspension, do you remember? Did your classmate taste like chicken? <laughs> Jackson. Yo, uh, Frank, uh, I noticed uh, I listened to your show from time to time, and uh, I noticed that you're not aware of what the Confederate States of America did. At Galveston, you know, there are there are uh, annual calendars in the Confederacy that indicated that maybe we're in a different time zone now. Eddie. What is the difference between pivot and shift and shuck and jive? And do you have to dress for it? Terry. Good morning, Frank. Yesterday is a canceled check. Tomorrow is a promissory note. Today is cash in hand. Robert. Hey, Frank. Um, I've got a, a, an idea for a future guest speaker. I think you've got great guests. I would be really interested to listen to you interview Dick Wolf, who's created Law & Order, Law & Order SUV, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, and also Chuck Laurie, who created Two and a Half Men, and um, also uh, Christopher Lloyd, who, who is the genius behind Frasier. I think it'll be really interesting. Agree, agree on all three, Robert. Agree on all three, Pete. Yeah, guys, get out and vote this time. Nicole Milotakis and Lee Selman, please vote. We got to get back to the way things were. Andrew. Andrew. Rick. Good morning, Frank. You forgot to answer who Ray Brin's daughter is. She's one of the. Hey, ladies, now I'm Fox News. I, I did not know that. I did not know that. Uh, Troy. Got to do a short of anti-stock, APE stock, and shares of our securities. F. Ken Griffin, hashtag F. hashtag F. Ken Griffin. Steve. The Monkey Chunks, greatest punk rock band in the world. Monkey Chunks. Jimmy. Diana West's book, The Red Thread, documents the people behind the Russian collusion hoax, the long history of Marxist affiliations and movements that they're involved in. The Red Thread by Diana West. You should interview her. Thank you, Jimmy. All right. That about slams the lid on things for today. I will be back tomorrow. Richard Bay is here um, uh, in town, meaning. I think he's going to tr- join us in studio tomorrow. I'm trying to come up with something creative to do with him next uh, tomorrow. If you have any ideas, email me, frank.moreno at wabcradio.com. I thought it might be fun to make him debate four different subject matter experts on four different subjects, but I'm just kind of 
playing around with that idea. Uh, if you have some ideas of something creative to do, email me and we'll certainly consider it. Uh, Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. All right. Um, until then, I hope your day is fulfilling. Those of you that are Jewish, have an easy fast. Frank Moreno, good day.